I was indoctrinated into the healthcare industry and that drugs are bad and psychedelics are going to make me a crackhead and all of this stuff. And I've seen more positive, expansive transformation in myself and the people that I've supported in psychedelics than in my entire career as a nurse. I'm Ta. I'm Cole. And this is the Lifestylist Podcast. Hey, party people. This is episode 442. You should know that all the notes and all the things for this one are located at lukestory.com slash integrate. This is a special one, guys. It features my epic friends, Ta and Cole. And if you don't know their work yet, they happen to host the Psychedelic Coach podcast and are co-creators of the Condor Approach, which is a psychedelic-informed certification for therapists, physicians, life coaches, and health experts. The potential these master plants and fungi have for moving humanity forward in mental and physical well-being cannot be ignored. And Ta and Cole are committed to building business structures that are contribution-driven and committed to reciprocity for indigenous communities. They are up to some great work, guys, and we're going to dig into it right here. Now, we cover some pretty vast terrain in this conversation, so I'll just briefly tease a couple of the talking points here and let you know that I highly encourage you to see this one through to its conclusion because it gets pretty juicy, and I think it could be useful to many people on the path of awakening. We talk about the difference between recreational drugs and psychedelic medicines, how they each navigated negative experience with psychedelic facilitators in their past. In contrast, we touch on the beautiful Wachuma ceremony Alice and I shared with them. And they also define a psychedelic-informed coach and why it's so important to have one if you're exploring these realms. Techniques for creating boundaries as a coach or facilitator, the legal risks for coaches and therapists working with these substances, red flags for coaches or facilitators to be aware of before engaging with clients, and the most important questions someone should ask a coach, facilitator, or healing center before working with them in this capacity, why it's critical to integrate psychedelic work for lasting change, And we also spend some time talking about the industry of psychedelics and its ethics, legality, benefits, and potential downside, as well as something I'm really excited about personally, which is the emerging intersection of addiction recovery and psychedelics. We also explore how we might move forward and innovate this work while still honoring the traditions from which it originated, how we can each support rather than exploit the indigenous people who carried plant medicine traditions forward, the differences between synthetic and natural psychedelics, And finally, we discuss how we can increase access to these methods of healing and growth for people with fewer financial resources. Before we jump in, some of you will no doubt want to explore Ta and Cole's psychedelic-informed coaching program. So if you're a therapist, life coach, facilitator, or someone who supports people in their psychedelic work, this is an incredible way to systematize your impact and really up-level your capacity to support your clients. To learn more about their program, which is, of course, discussed in the following conversation, here's what you do. Visit lukestory.com slash ta cole, T-A-H-K-O-L-E, lukestory.com slash ta cole. And these two lovely humans have offered a sweet discount code of $250 off your course. And that code is luke250. And heads up, this info is, of course, also available in the show notes on your podcast app. And I'd also like to let you know that registration for their upcoming February 2023 event in Austin is now open, but registration closes December 15th, 2022. All right, that's it. Let's welcome Ta and Cole back to the Lifestylist podcast for their second appearance to learn how to create deeper healing and access divinity 
through the sacred practice of self-discovery and ceremony. And by all means, if you feel moved by what you hear today, please send this show to a friend. All right, here we go. Second time on the Lifestylist Podcast. I have long hair now. <laughs> you do? My hair is about the same length. True. Yours is the same length. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, just about. Yeah, last time we recorded, um, we were out here prospecting. Mm-hmm. That would have been around Christmas time 2020. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we were like trying to feel into Austin and uh, we got to connect with you and a bunch of other great people. And we were like, well, they got the people covered. Well, we started like putting the tendrils in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and everyone starts to like collaborate together to pull right. in the people we want here. And then we move here like about five minutes from you guys. We move in our house and you move away to downtown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, bait, like, welcome. Bait and switch. Bait and switch. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome. Peace. <laughs> no, that's good. Um, I want to start out by knowing what's the most exciting thing going on in your individual lives right now, each of you? Ladies first. Man, there's so much. You know, that there's a lot that's actually been really confronting for me this last year um, because having been in the underground for 14 years, like nobody really know, knew what I did, right? I was just that person that was like hanging out that everybody knew, but nobody knew why. Um, and so the thing that's been exciting and challenging in that excitement has been now getting like recognized or or just like the open conversations around psychedelics. I'm still kind of, my nervous system is still getting used to because everything is starting to change really fast now. When I look at the last 14 years, just the last year and a half, 18 months, everything just ramped up. And so it's, it's been exciting because it's been challenging a lot of my ideas around how things should be in psychedelic space, how you're supposed to train and who's supposed to train you. And all of that has been challenged because the world is changing. <laughs> yeah, it certainly has. That's, a, that's an interesting observation thinking about my very recent exploration into this realm, maybe four years ago or so. And I just kind of, I think, took it for granted that, that it's always been this way, but I just wasn't a part of it because I was in sobriety. And it was just, that's those people over there. That's off limits to me. So I don't want to end up under a bridge somewhere. And, um, but yeah, now that you say that, I'm like, oh, it's a whole thing. All right, cool. Like so this that's... is in my family signal group with my Mormon parents in Utah. You know <laughs> right, what I mean? <laughs> right. Totally. All right. How about Utah? What's, yeah, what's I mean, happening in your life the, right the now? The most exciting, the most profound thing for me right now is I just reached 25 seconds in a handstand at age 50. And I, that's something that I never perceived possible in the past. And so it's, it's opening me into another space of what else is possible for me and for humanity. And so when I look at myself and I see me in this body, not wearing glasses anymore, feeling younger, looking younger. Right, we got to talk about the glasses, bro. Because <laughs> right? as, as you started talking, not to interrupt, but as you started talking, I was like, fuck, I should have worn my glasses. His, his, face, <laughs> his face is like double vision blurry. From me. <laughs> like, like there's so many things that have gotten me into a spot where I see the possibility for myself and I see the possibility for other human beings. And being in the healthcare industry for as long as I've been a nurse for 29 years and being in a clinical setting for 25 of those 29 years, I had some, it was such a distress space where I was looking to fix people, fix people, fix people. And my objective was to help people stay out of the hospital. And that's what I've been doing. And leaning into this space with us and what we're doing and coaching people around psychedelics has been I've seen more transformation in the last 
10 years of my life than I have in my entire life. And I mean, it's been radical. The shifts are radical. And I, I was indoctrinated into the healthcare industry and that drugs are bad and psychedelics are going to make me a crackhead and all of this stuff. And I've seen more positive, expansive transformation in myself and the people that I've supported in psychedelics than in my entire career as a nurse. And this is something that I'm an advocate for. This is something that, that I'm in introducing to nurses, doctors, therapists, all of these people and getting them into the space where they can start to understand this and actually support ushering this in to the new wellness paradigm. So that's what I'm most excited about is the handstands Amen. and that. <laughs> Amen. The handstands and... <laughs> Are you talking handstand without a wall? No you? wall, bro. Middle Damn. of the floor. Middle He's been working floor. on this for like five years. That's so, so 2016 was my first time making an attempt at a handstand. Wow. And I've been kind of dabbling in it. And this past, this past four months, man, I've been on it. And it's just been consistently on it, on it, on it. And as I snap into these different spaces, I'm able to see the nuances in my body in ways that I had never done before. Wow. And so I've opened myself up into a space of realization that I've never, I've never understood before. And so I see new possibilities for myself and that creates new realms of possibility for the people that I work with. Wow. That's amazing. Thank, Thank you, you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember years ago doing Hatha yoga and a great teacher, this guy Moss Vidal, actually, he's, he was on the show way early on and, and he'd have us do the, the handstands, but we could, you know, we'd hit the wall. <laughs> I mean, five seconds of that and I'd that's be true. dying, you know, and I was way younger than you are. So that's awesome, dude. Thank you, man. All right. So I, I was setting the intention for this conversation that we could both speak to the folks listening who are, you know, dabbling in the realm of plant medicines and psychedelics, uh, those that have some experience and are like, yeah, duh, we've been on this for a while, like you guys have. Um, but I also want to speak to the people that are just kind of hearing whispers of this and going, what is this all about? And I don't know if that's possible, but I just want to state um, that intention as we, as we get in here. Because as I was preparing my manuscript, some of the questions were kind of far out and some were, you know, very newbie. And I was like, oh, I got to aim it toward a certain listener. And I thought, you know what, let's try and just make it well-rounded. That works for me. So I guess we could start out. And this was one of the ones that's kind of for people that maybe are uh, largely unfamiliar with this topic, but how would you define the definition between what we would consider recreational or potentially dangerous drugs versus intentional healing power plants, plant medicine, psychedelics, entheogens, and so on. What, what's the defining characteristic, do you think, so that people can understand? Well, I mean, it's all intentional. <laughs> it's just what is the intention, <laughs> ah, that's right? That's good. That's so, good, yeah. because, and this is where my perspective has shifted a lot in the last two to three years, because previously, and, you know, the fact that we've trained with a lot of indigenous elders and teachers who come from different traditions, and it's a part of their lifestyle since birth. Um, I had my ideas that if you're doing it in a party setting, then that was bad or wrong. Um, and my mind has shifted in a lot of ways because when I look back at, so I first started to explore psychedelics in 1999, but I was doing it in that party, going to clubs in that vibe. The rave scene was big back then, right? The thing was though, had it not been for substances back then, I would not have healed from some of the traumas that had happened in my teens because those were the only people I could relate to and talk to. And so, you know, I ended up in a coma at 17 
from GHB. It was a contaminated batch, a bad batch of GHB. There was nine of us that ended up in the hospital. And so that's when I realized I couldn't hang out in that scene safely because I thought I was smart. You know, I was told GHB is not dangerous. If you know what you're doing, we got a contaminated batch we didn't know, right? And so what I recognized then was that I couldn't be in the crowd in the scene that I was and that that wasn't the path. But in retrospect, had I not had that exploration back then, I honestly, I'm not sure what would have happened because I didn't have the support that I needed with some of the traumas that had happened and finding other people that had been through that is what kept me alive longer. And so, you know, whether it was cigarettes or alcohol or substances, when I really stripped back or like kind of pull myself back and remove any of the judgments, then I actually find that it always comes down to intention. And sometimes that intention is partying. Um, I think the difference is when someone realizes that they're buffering or avoiding feelings, that that path is going to hit a dead end. And so when you intentionally shift it towards what do I need to know, do, be, or understand about myself, my environment, my choices, then that type of intention starts to get you somewhere. So for me, the only difference is one tends to lead to a wall that you'll do something about or not. And the other one becomes an infinite path. And so it just determines what intention do you want to go towards. I love that. I love that. It's a very non-dual way to look at it because I think as someone coming out of, of you know, a history of very destructive drug use <laughs> to myself and anyone that happened to be in my orbit, I, I tend to classify, and it's not a judgmental thing against people who you know like to do blow or whatever they're doing. It's just I think well those are bad because they were bad for me. Sure. And then this other realm that we're going to be speaking about is good. You know, it's kind of this binary um, a way to to look at it. But I love that. That's a really that's a really great way to. Put I mean, that, we're you know? we're seeing as much addiction in the shamanic spaces. There's merely less judgment on it. And what I mean by that is, people can get enough significance and desire to connect to the oneness, but then when they come back to three D and don't actualize as any of the changes to bring heaven on earth, then they have to journey again, yeah. which can be just as dysfunctional and cause them to not pay p- pay bills and go into a deep depression because they realize where they aren't but they're yeah. not taking the steps. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't come with the same judgments as someone with a needle in an alley. But we are seeing as much, as much dysfunction in journey spaces too. You know, for me, what comes into play to make the difference in those spaces is information in a form of context, judgment, and indoctrination. And so the context that a person uses a substance in has a lot to do with how they're educated and informed on it and how they're judged on it and how we judge the substance or the substance use in an indoctrinated space puts us into a place to determine if something is good or bad. Now, when you look at this country, right? Partying, right? Partying, having a great time, people getting together, cooking out at a a picnic, right? It's a great thing. It's fun, right? Except is it a good thing when you're hanging somebody from a tree and you're having a picnic to celebrate that, right? And so where's the judgment? Where's the context? Where's the indoctrination? And, right, <laughs> He's right? like, wow, that went okay. okay. Well, we're, going, we're going deep. Yeah, okay. no, I mean, if we're going to go there, yeah. then let's go let's there. Let's do it. And so, and so when you look at substances, I have a very close friend who, is, uh, who, who utilizes cocaine to journey with. And this person, he has, he's very intentional, sets up his, his house, has 
incense burning, music playing, very intentional with it. And he's very dose specific with it. And he goes in and this is how he expands. And he comes back from his realms with all of this stuff. And it's an occasional circumstance. It's not a situation that happens all the time. And so this person is informed, he's educated, experienced in this space. It doesn't disrupt his entire life. And that I when I told me I was like man what are you doing I was a nurse right oh <laughs> all this judgment space and and it took me getting into the space of understanding outside of my context with 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 uh with psychedelics to start to understand that he wasn't just messing around he was really going into a space of learning about himself using that substance that's something that I was that was foreign to me and so in learning about this I got to remove my judgment. I got to remove my indoctrination and I got to change my context around that space with the information that I now had. And so the judgment space that we put ourselves in around recreation, recreation in our world is, 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 is it's a good thing until it's not. And if you have too much recreation, it's a bad thing. If you feel too good, it's a bad thing. And so we, we, we damn a lot of things where people are looking to feel good. And we damn the things that would remove people from feeling horrible about themselves or depressed, which could be substances that would put people into these spaces. So my invitation for, for folks is to look into the information space in the form of context, judgment, and indoctrination. Those are the three factors for me that would lean into seeing a difference, a bifurcation in that space. So you, you reminded me, you guys know uh, Carl Hart, right? Yeah. yeah. Carl Hart. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That, Drug Use for Grownups. Yeah. What's his book called? Drug, Drug Use, Use for Grownups. Yeah, grown yeah. Amazing book. That, it is. <laughs> that freaking book blew my mind because, I mean, a lot of it. And hopefully, do you guys know him personally? No. Him. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I tried to get him on an interview and I never heard back. So I'm going to try again. If anyone knows him, shout out to <laughs> Dr. Carl Hart. But in that book, amongst many of the mind blowing, paradigms that he just exploded was talking about how he uses heroin recreationally and and no judgment but as a former heroin addict (laughs) you're like what my recreational period was probably about three weeks and then it was like five years of you know the real deal and I, i think a lot of that is circumstantial and depending on your trauma and your your genes probably even you know but one thing i really liked from his perspective was and this is kind of a little bit of what you're touching on maybe is the preconceived ideas we have around drugs, and a lot of that has been imposed upon us, right? Where when uh, cannabis started, you know, bleeding into Western culture, it was like, oh, those dirty Mexicans, it's their drug, right? And it's like a dangerous drug, reefer madness and all this stuff. But there was like a racial component to it. And then also with heroin, you know, it's like the black jazz musicians are using it. And then they're like, aha, now we can pin it on them. Mm -hmm. You know, even though it's predominantly white people (laughs) doing it. (laughs) Yeah. But it's a, you know, it's like, I love how he explored the systemic kind of um, the brainwashing around it, Mm -hmm. around prohibition, you know? I mean, and that's, even if you look at something like sexuality, if you come from a deeply indoctrinated religious culture, the shame alone of a sexual experience, like when we look at it through a trauma lens, because from a facilitation perspective, when we're doing an intake process, we're not just taking in their current medical, you know, what medications they may be taking. We're looking at their cultural considerations, the environment of their childhood. Are they first generation American? You know, were their parents immigrants? Like what, were they the immigrant? There's so many factors, their gender dynamics, sex that play into all the habits that create this organism and how it functions. And so deep shame becomes a construct that works through someone's system to self-oppress and repress and oppress. And so even looking at something where if someone thinks heroin is bad and they've now crossed that line, their thought 
about the action can create the feeling that takes them over the edge that's pushing that shame dynamic. So if none of that existed, the judgment on a substance, and we only looked at the results, if we only said, okay, so this person does heroin just, you know, every single day, but they've done this company that contributes $10 billion to end sex slave trafficking, would we see that as a problem? You know? And so for us, that's our biggest thing is when we, we do what we can um, from a coaching perspective to literally just look at the results. Is someone getting what they want? And if they're, or where they're looking to grow? And if they're going off track, how far? And then it's asking them, are you okay with the results? I love smoking cigarettes, like point blank period, <laughs> love. And oh, man. the thing is, there is a point that it's detrimental to my organism, right? Yeah. And so the thing is, now if I smoke a cigarette, I'm so present to it. I'm in full gratitude. It's, it's interesting to watch. Yeah. And you're able to do that? Yeah. And ju- like, I'll go through a three-week smoking period and just stop. Oh, my God. It just fades out because... There's some, there is an intention that for me, remember tobacco is a master plant also. It's for grounding. And even me in a smoking phase might be two in a day. So it's not suddenly going to a pack I'm throwing back, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm, my intention is always like to get a really good quality tobacco. And sometimes I'm just ratchet and do what I want, <laughs> which is cool too. But Give when some I, cool menthols at the 7-Eleven. Okay, no, she has it's standards. Newport. No, she does have standards. But it's, it's when I look at the results and when you, when you learn radical self-acceptance and honesty, then you go, okay, so here's where I want to be. And let's say I have physical fitness goals. If this is impacting my lung capacity, which is more important to me right now? Sometimes the grounding of tobacco, if I'm in a rough mental place, is more important in the moment. And other times, staying uncomfortable is more important to get to the goal. And so this is where developing systems of radical honesty, which is like the coaching methods that is like the groundwork for what we do, is that you get to choose. This is your life. But if you'll remove the stigmas or at least be aware of them, but truly look at the data, what is the outcome? What's your physical health? Are you enjoying your life? What direction are you going? Then what difference does it make? And when I reach that level of self-acceptance for myself, that's why I could go a year, two years, not have a single puff of a cigarette and then go three weeks straight. But I know my body so well now that... I could hold food in my hand and if my body's like, "Mm, I won't eat it. I could have a full plate of food I've had a thousand times. That took time and really like intimately getting to know my body and knowing my body's cues and really trusting that no one's the expert of me. Most of the medical conditions I had, surgeries, when something didn't go right, I was the one that figured it out afterwards because I have studied this system and I know it. Yeah, I like the piece um, of looking at the results, right? By their fruits, you shall know them kind of thing. And this was a huge hurdle for me when I was 22 years sober, living my best life, growing, changing, but still stuck in some places. And when I made the leap, I got such incredible results and expansion and healing that I continued on, you know, with, I I think, a pretty decent degree of caution and discernment. But after about three years of that, I got a call from my dad. <laughs> He's like, hey, can we talk? And he says, um, actually, no, I had the first call from a, a, a mentor I used to have in recovery. Same call, two different people. 
both of them went a little something like this. Hey, man, like, what's going on with you and like these psychedelics and stuff? Are you cool? And I knew that I was cool, but I had to kind of explain to them to, you know, uh, alleviate some of their worry and our concerns. And the thing that came to me was, okay, let me just look at all the metrics of my life in every conceivable way, in every category of my life, my internal, mental, emotional, spiritual life, my sexuality, my finances, everything outward, career, relationship, every single thing. If you had a chart was like, a fucking hockey stick of just mm -hmm. doing great, you know? And if I was using, using addictively, like the way I was with the intention I had, which is just, you know, slowly or maybe quickly kill myself, that would be an upside down hockey stick where I would lose everything in a matter of weeks or months. My entire life would be burned to the ground because I did it many times. I know what that looks like, you know? So I love that. You were going to add something to that, Tom? Yeah, I have something that I can add to it. Yeah. You know, when, when I look at the lens of, of substances and, and addiction and usage and, and these types of things, as a nurse, I, I, I took care of a lot of people that dove into substances and most of them were not addicted. And there are three levels that I see people using substances, crutching, coping, and survival. Right? There are people who would crutch on substances. Every once in a while, they need to take the edge off of life. Then there were people who used substances to cope with what was going on. And then there were people who were, the, the people who I saw that were addicted were doing it for survival. In survival that they wouldn't kill themselves or that, you know, it was barely keeping them alive. Mm -hmm. Very familiar. Because, right? Okay. <laughs> What's so, the third option? Okay. okay. And so, and so this is, these are the three spaces that I've seen people in. And the, the crutching was usually the recreational people, the people who were doing it for, for recreational purposes. The, the coping were the people who were looking to keep their families together or glue themselves to a, a, a circumstance or stay in their job or whatever. And then the survival people, those are the people who were, this is the only way that I can feel good enough at some point to keep my to give myself a reason to be alive mm -hmm. on this planet. And so I worked at over like 13 hospitals in New York City, okay? Because I wanted to see the different socioeconomic backgrounds, the different uh, racial, cultural, ethnic, ethnic situations. And it was the same thing for everybody. There was crutching, coping, and survival. No matter who was using substances, it was in those three spaces. And, and that's what I saw. And so this also was one of the reasons why I was like, I see this so clearly. How come nobody else sees this? I wanted to get out of nursing because the system was still fortifying people staying in the same loops. Our, our mental health system was, was, not, was not helping people to see themselves and be full in themselves. It was helping them to be repeat customers. And so this was problematic. This was an issue because the drug war we were, it was, it was very few people and that was being broadcasted and accentuated by our media. And the majority of people that were using substances weren't in an addictive space. And so this caused me a lot of confusion in myself, which caused me to want to get out of the healthcare industry because I saw a lot of lying going on. And so I just wanted to bring that into the conversation because these are the spaces around the, you know, all drugs are bad. It's not the drugs that are bad. It's the drugs that are being used for these reasons. Are we aware that they're being used for these reasons? And the people that need these, that are using these substances need our help more than anybody. And we're, we're damning them. We're punishing them. We're sending them to jail. We're sending them to, to, to rehab places. We're not hiring them. We're doing all of these things instead of giving them this, offering them the support that would really help them integrate their lives. And their lives are disintegrated. And that's why integration is so important to me. And it's in the, you know, I love that Taz just saying that 
about integration because people go into these power plant master mycelium experiences, they are disintegrated. They come out of it, go back to work on Monday, and then journeying becomes another way to buffer or to just let some air out just enough to continue forward. And for me, when I got really honest with myself, at first I took suicide off the table. So when I made that decision that I wouldn't take my own life intentionally in that way, that was like phase one. Phase two was realizing I had only changed the speed of my suicide. I had only decided not to do it quickly. And the thing that was more insidious in this, in my own healing journey, was I was slowly killing myself with what I ate, fast food, um, you know, drinking like the cheapest Magnum bottles of wine, you know, like Boone's <laughs> Farm style from like the gas uh, yeah. station, oh, ambient to sleep, energy drinks to wake up. And that was killing me more than any other substance was. Mm. But socially, that was acceptable. And when, if we really just removed the stigma from any substances and looked at how someone's life was operating, like how is it functioning for them? If you took away Netflix, cell phones, people that are busy and always creating is also an adaptation. You can have two kids from the same family where one becomes an addict and the other becomes a successful CEO but their hypervigilance of the hypervigilance of a CEO could be causing trauma in their children because of the compliance they force or the they end up having a health crash because they're suppressing emotion and we've seen this more times than I can count and so if we only looked at the results and then at different ages are we happy with the results then that's when my life started to actually improve was the radical honesty and always not in the ways that I was told was bad, but actually looking at how's my body functioning? How's my life functioning? How's everything going? I feel great about it. Perfect. Yeah. Amen. You just reminded me of something when you're talking about the cheap wine. Oh my God. Drinking 40 ounces of malt liquor, man. Yummy. Two <laughs> two bucks. They're like two bucks. Totally. And then if we only had two bucks, we would water it down. I just remembered this. And me and my homie, Ron A, shout out to Ron A, probably never heard my podcast before. <laughs> we used to, we'd, we'd say, let's make some Budweiser. So we'd take King Cobra and we just oh. add water. <laughs> I mean, yeah, King Cobra is disgusting oh, totally. in and of itself. But man, when you add some water, you do not have a Budweiser, by the way, to our friends listening. King Cobra, Colt 45, oh, yeah. Old English 800. Oh, yeah. Getting it done. Getting Oof. it done quick. <laughs> All right, I'm going to hit you to something incredibly important here by asking you a couple questions. Are you sometimes constipated? Do you have high blood pressure? Are you irritable or anxious? Do you struggle with insomnia? Do you experience muscle cramps or twitches? Well, check it out. If you answered yes to one or more of these symptoms, it's possible and frankly, quite likely that you are magnesium deficient. Wah, wah, wah. But don't feel bad because four out of five Americans are missing this mega critical nutrient. And it's not our fault. The issue is that it's missing from our soil and as a result, our diets. And I can't overstate the significance of this mineral. Magnesium is involved in more than 600 biochemical reactions in your body. But because we burn through it so quickly, especially when we're stressed, by the way, and the fact that most magnesium supplements on the market are garbage, it's really hard to keep your levels in the optimal zone. I've tried and it has never worked until I discovered this product called Magnesium Breakthrough. It's the only full-spectrum supplement with seven unique forms of magnesium that your body can easily use and absorb. 
So here's what's up. The makers of Magnesium Breakthrough, our friends Bioptimizers, are having a sweet Black Friday special from November 21st through the 29th, wherein you can get not only Magnesium Breakthrough, but all of the Bioptimizers best-in-class products for 25% off. You heard that right. Major deal here, guys. To get in on this, go to buyoptimizers.com slash Luke and enter the code Luke10 to get 25% off any order. Now, if you're hearing this after the sale period, don't trip. There is always a 10% off code for you listeners with the code Luke10. But if you arrive just in time, again, the link for the exclusive Black Friday offer starting November 21st is buyoptimizers.com slash Luke with the code Luke10. So I don't want to spend too much time on this because yeah. I really want to get into the the coaching facilitation, all of the mm-hmm. stuff that you guys are into now, and you have yeah. incredible offerings. And so I want to get into that. But I'm curious because I don't think I've ever asked either of you this. What was the uh, kind of moment or the deciding factor when you went from a participant in ceremony and started experiencing positive results and healing uh, to you know your first journey you're leading for someone? Because you guys have facilitated Allison and I in a, in a legal yeah. location. And um, and you're very skilled at it. I mean, we felt Thank incredibly you. safe and held and it was a really beautiful experience. But I don't think I ever got this, the origin story of like, when did you break off and go, wow, I want to do this. I'm going to learn and start doing it. You know, I think that that's a common... Um or I see a lot of people come into this work with this idea that there's just this moment and then you step into it. And you're, you're, <laughs> right, you're now right. a facilitator. Right. Um, first of all, if you're doing that, um, let's talk. You definitely need to come to one of our trainings. The thing was, it, when you first get the call, it's like when someone decides they want to become a doctor. So you do pre-med and then you go to medical school and then you do residency. Like there is a process before you actually are on your own doing surgery, right? And then you still have a team or whatever. And so it was an evolutionary process, one that we were more resistant than accepting of. And it really wasn't until enough people came to us because we kept putting together groups for facilitators. And it wasn't until enough people were like, I I don't want to sit with them. Like, when are are y'all going to do it? Because first, I spent six years on my own healing journey. I had a lot of medical conditions. There's lots of podcasts on it as far as my healing journey. But I spent six years, I needed to figure, I had a lot to sort in my physical health. And so by the time Ta and I started doing the work together, I had been six years in myself and then he's got 11 years on me. So he was already doing forms of work that wasn't psychedelics, right? And so when we started going to journeys together, we would sit and facilitate people because of our experience, but we were not the facilitator. We were integrators. And so we started getting invited just to come be of service and hold space. And then that started to be where we started to be more involved over time. And so there wasn't a moment. I don't even remember our first time like facilitating officially or something. Do you? Oh, I do. I bet you do. You remember everything. Oh, yeah, I do. And, you know, it was like she was saying, it's a process. Mm -hmm. And it was was one thing after the next. And people were asking us, please, please, please. And the thing is, we have this way of accepting people, radical acceptance of all people, where we were getting, our love is really, really big. And we do a lot of kissing and hugging and making out. And we were told at Journeys that we couldn't kiss anymore. 
that our love was triggering people. <laughs> and so we saw, we started to see other people not being accepted in journey spaces. And so it gave us more of a, a kind of like a push to lean Your into. Your joy is too much for this trauma container. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and, so, and so it gave us kind of a push into a space where people were like, please, I, I see how free y'all are. I want to be in that free energy. Do you think you can do that? And so we ended up leaning into that space. Mm -hmm. It was an honor for people to ask us to be in that space. It was also frightening because I was like, I'm not a facilitator. Who am I? I I haven't trained enough. And this is where, you know, this is where we started. You know, part of what really shifted, and this is where a lot of our perspective shifted as well, is in this last year and a half, there's been an, an awakening, unlike I have seen in the last 14 years, of people that feel like they are so certain they're called to be facilitators or in this work in some way. And I truly believe that through these master teachers, many people's ancestral traditions are being awakened for the next evolution of elders for our, because this culture doesn't have elders. And so many peoples has been stripped away that it feels to me like an awakening. And this is not just here in the States, you know, our teachers from South America and beyond, like to Arctic Siberia are seeing similar things, more shaman being born. And so what we've also seen is that, okay, more people are getting the call. That's what caused us to fully step out and start to educate because I also believe that everyone can support someone. You just need to get clear in what you know, what you don't, what your skill sets are, what they are not. Because just like CPR, if I was out and I was the only person there, even though I've only taken like two, four hour classes, I would do the best I could if I was the only person there. I'm the best person for the job. And we have lots of communities in the States that don't have professional support, that don't have a shaman or an indigenous elder. And so there will be people that feel safest with someone that looks like them, someone with a similar lived experience. And that level of safety, if someone feels safe to explore themselves, is quite often all they need is a safe container for step one. And so that's when we really decided that's what we wanted to empower was that for the leaders of each community to come forward so that we could give them frameworks so that they could see, are we in alignment with what we want? Are we educated? Because without education, people can't choose how they're participating in these things. Wow. That's awesome. I I love the way that you're approaching that, you guys. It's it's very cool. Thank Um, you. And I think part of that question is is for myself too, and I'm sure... Many people share this, but when you have such a profound experience within yourself and you you break through, you know, lifelong patterns and you have these ecstatic experiences with the divine and all of the things that are uh, potentially happening in a ceremony, um, it's quite common that I come out of it. And I'm like, I need to do this. This is my calling, you know? <laughs> and then a couple of days go by and I'm like, well, I'm kind of doing my <laughs> podcast thing. <laughs> you know? I'll stick with the podcast. But and especially, that is especially prevalent anytime I've sat with, uh, with Bufa, with the toad. I mean, and even saying it now, I'm like, you're probably right. But after those, I'm always like, literally nothing else matters. Like, I have to do this. But then I go back to life and then it's like, oh, well, what about that? Well, I'd have to go train under someone and, you know, the logistics of it and feeling like qualified, I think is something that I, you know, I'm honest with myself about um, sure. that I, those situations could be potentially dangerous in a number of ways, especially with that, you know. Um, well, but this is the thing is like, we don't actually ascribe to that. It's through proper intake, there should be zero harm with all substances. Doesn't mean it's impossible, but the medicalization models that are being rolled out, they're actually including harm. So for them, if they're saying we're having an efficacy of 80% of people, 
rock on. That's better than any other antidepressant or medication that's available on the market. So you as, you know, Luke just had this incredible experience. Statistically, you're still probably fine if it's people that know and trust you. And this is not to condone any illegal behavior by anyone, merely to say that when we work with elders, the harm is zero because they know the proper intake process to understand if this is the right direction for someone. And so by clearly educating people in what they need to know, do, be, or understand from the intake process, you would already know if this is something each individual person is comfortable with. Because for us, it's not rocket science, actually. Now that we tracked it for such a long time, it's quite clear in our data what the potentials are. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in someone's experience, but because of their life, because of how their parents are, have been, or how they're physically manifesting illness and disease right now, we can pretty much guess what's going to be on the other side of their experience out of two possibilities, which helps to educate and inform the person and create a what we call what happens when. So if you get that, if you get this outcome, what do we do? If you get this outcome, what do we do? And then people are there to choose and it's a collaboration versus a diagnosis or a treatment. So it's a completely different approach. Yeah, I like that. It's an integrated approach. Mm -hmm. And and the way we see integration, the whole process is integration. The psychedelic experience is a part of a process of integration. From when you first start considering that you want to make a shift in your existence— you're integrating a potential. And then when you lean into having an intention, you're creating an intention. You're integrating that intention. When you bring in a facilitator or a shaman or a therapist, you express your intention with them. They do an intake on you. You do an intake on yourself. You bring the information together. That information becomes integrated. The person supporting becomes informed. And so if anything should come up in the experience or after the experience, We know how to navigate. When we ask you, okay, if this happens, what would you like us to do? How would you like to be supported? It gives us a safety net. It gives the person an idea that they will be safe. So the psychedelics don't have to go in and pound their way in. They go in gently and they kind of stir the pot and bring things to the surface to be explored. When the person is in a psychedelic experience, since we've gone through their life situation, not just their mindset, but their body set, their social set, the setting of their constructs, be that their race, gender, identity, nationality, so forth, all of these things they're, they're, and their social set, we know what this person is navigating. So it's not a surprise to us if anything should come up. We know how to redirect a person back to their intention. And then afterwards, we help them to integrate that and mesh that with their life, with their job, with their family, with whatever it is as a new person that's coming back with all this new information. And so the whole process of what we're looking at is integration. That's awesome. Because rather than looking at an experience like this as you're living your life, you're on a flat plane, and then you go into a ceremony or therapy session and fireworks go off. And then you just like, that was the thing. But what you're saying is, the whole process is the thing mm-hmm. and that, that those fireworks in the middle of the story are merely just part of the landscape of, of a more broad exactly. process. Yeah. yeah. Well, so you just remodeled a house. So this, this will make sense for you. What a lot of people want is they're uncomfortable with some part of their life. So they seek out a facilitator. 
And they're like, let's just do harder, faster, more now. Or I'm going to go to the jungle and do 10 ayahuasca ceremonies in 14 days. I'm going to get to the other side of my trauma. And then I'll be able to come back and everything's going to be better. We have to look at, like Ta was saying, the body set. If they've got adrenal system, just like they're totally fatigued. If they're having strange allergies or strange skin things, just signs that the body's already in a lot of distress. Going into something like ayahuasca could actually make things worse because their body's depleted. The body will reach a point, it will completely shut down. And so just like remodeling a house, what we teach from a coaching method, because again, we're not teaching facilitation. We're helping in education and integration as an entire process. What we can educate someone is someone may come to me with that example and say, all right, so you know, in remodeling my internal landscape, I want to take this load-bearing wall of trauma because I think that if I just rip the root out on this deep wound, then I'll be free. We call it like psychotecture. We're looking at the inner architecture and load-bearing walls. And so because of our assessment process, I could go, hey, Luke, I know that you want to take this wall out and get an open concept and you'll feel like there'll be more space in your system. But that adaptation is also giving you the ability to work. And if you lose that ability to work and you can't support your children, your family, pay for your bills, I'm concerned in that that could then slide into a depressive state because you can't pay for the wellness checkups and things you need to be supported in your life. And so what that means is where can we create support systems that if someone's going to do that work, beautiful, but we want to make sure that there is an infrastructure to support something big like that being compromised or taken out. Because if it's a load bearing part of someone's existence, the whole thing can come collapsing in. And then it's two years if you have the resources for support. I've seen it happen. Have either of you, I mean, that thing of, you know, too much, too fast, not thoughtful, you're gone for months or, and one, and one of my friends, he was out for about a year. Yep. Just too enthusiastic. Too much, too fast. That creates trauma too in the system. Have either of you ever had any negative experiences with facilitators who were ill-equipped to handle the the uh, the grid the space in an experience that we were having yeah, that you were having as a participant I have not no I had people I didn't resonate with that were not space holders for me and so and this is why someone may come highly recommended to you and be great for everyone but they're not for you and so I had a facilitator that I started laughing when they were trying to do like a very serious meditation but the more they tried to like repress me for that then it became that like laugh, you know, when you're trying to not laugh thing. And so then I got up because they asked me to leave the space if I couldn't, their, their idea of reverence varies and people's ideas and projections come into facilitation too. And I was raised in a religion where you cross your arms and bow your head to be reverent, right? And so now I'm not being reverent for this experience. And so they asked me to leave. But I'm like, I'm not going off by myself right now. I'm getting ready to drop in. So I grab, I grab Ta's hand and I'm like, oh, you're coming with me because I'm not like going off by myself. And the more I'm trying not to laugh, it's turning into that like, you know, out of the nose, like, and it's just getting louder. And the building we were in was like stone and travertine. So it's just echoing off everything. And I don't even know where I'm running Ta to because I'm just trying to get away from the space before I just completely explode in laughter, which was apparently super offensive. 
And we sat and laughed like full belly for three or four hours. And it was the first time in my life I realized that I was done purging through suffering and that laughter was now the way that I could heal and move forward. And that those kind of containers had had their time for me to be intentional as far as head bow, alone, be quiet. It was like, no, now is the time to be big. And that's when that really informed how we hold containers where we say everything is welcome because we know how to set the context. We know how to talk through what that could look like. No one's allowed to just do anything in a moment. You come talk to me if you need something because we recognize there wasn't space for big energies. You were supposed to lay on your mat, be quiet, be still. And we were like, now is not the time to be quiet or be still. Yeah. You know, uh, bringing it back to remembering that weekend I'm going to change my answer to that okay. because it was the same facilitation oh, space that the next day I was having a conversation with somebody that came to me and asked me to help them navigate something. I was helping them navigate that. The facilitator was upset that I was supporting this person and they weren't and came and told me that I was being too much. And so I have a, I have a very uh, interesting talent of being able to pull myself out of an altered space. No matter how much. No matter talk. how much. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay. And I pulled myself completely out of it. And I went and I sat in a room by myself. And I just contemplated what was going on and what I never wanted to be a part of again. So I do want to change that. Mm -hmm. That was the one time mm -hmm. that I had that. And that I think that was the snap time that actually got us, got to me into forward. a space to step yeah. forward. So yeah, so, yeah, there so bringing it back around. Yeah, mm -hmm. there really wasn't a place for us. And and I think that was a big part in us moving to Austin in a lot of the people we in, we've ended up working with over the years was that it's people with big missions and purpose whose energies require more space actually. And so that made perfect sense to us where we were like, right, where can people go be big? Yell, scream, because for us, like even psychosis or anything doesn't concern us. We don't have that concern even if it's in someone's history. We have different questions. We have different things to talk through. We've worked with people with identity disorders, manic bipolar, on medications. If they had community support, a therapist, clear systems in their life, and as far as their own functioning, super functioning. Like they had a support system. And then there was a plan. And we talked to the therapist. Like everyone was informed of this action, right? And so for us... There's an incredible YouTube video um, by Kitty Sipple, and it's called, uh, if you look at the Gates of Madness, they literally share um, as someone with multiple disorders that's not supposed to do psychedelics, that people with a lot of these um, conditions live in madness. So they have an easier time navigating psychedelics oh, wow. as a result, given they have the right support system. And they live in a safe environment. Because where we see truly that the, when people end up coming to us after like a psychosis, psychedelics or not, we have, you know, we coach people for lots of reasons. Um, and psychosis is a transformational experience. No matter what brings them to us, usually the psychosis happens in an environment where there was tremendous trauma. So it's usually back around family is the time we see it the most often. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you guys developed the style of facilitation. And I, and I want to get into after this kind of delineating what you guys teach and facilitating. It's getting a totally. little mushed up. But back to like you as 
former facilitators, or I don't know what you're doing now, but luckily we got in when Once you, when a you were- Once a year in Costa Rica. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> or Peru. But when, when Alice and I sat with, with you two and, uh, and had a beautiful experience with Wachuma, otherwise known as San Pedro, for those listening who are unfamiliar with that word, there was a lot of intake long phone call. You knew a lot about us, where we were in our lives, our experience with, you know, prior medicine, all the things. Um, but what I thought was really cool about it was that it was just, you're on your own, do your own thing. And also knowing that you two are right there if we needed anything at all, whether it's a banana or a shoulder to cry on or whatever. Right. And I just had my own experience and I'd run into Allison and she'd just be off laughing and, you know, looking at the clouds and we'd kind (laughs) of hug, oh, bye. And then I'm off to the pool, sitting in the waterfall and just doing my thing. So it was a really, it it was very safe, but I think that safety was also put in place by the fact that you knew a lot about us and I knew that. So if anything comes up, I know that I can go to either of you and you're going to help me work through it. And turns out I didn't really need any help that day. But then at the end of the night, all four of us came together and then we started doing some work, mm-hmm. which was pretty new to me at that point. I'm kind of like solo mish journey guy, you know, <laughs> like I'm <laughs> talking to people is usually not in my repertoire. And and we, we worked through some really, I mean, it wasn't that sticky, but it was like stuff that would have had a different flavor and, and, you know, just in normal waking state conversation. And we had a really beautiful time. That's only because we felt like talking to you about it and we were in that space. And if we hadn't, I felt like you would have just said, okay, go do your thing. So it's a perfect blend, I guess, is what I'm saying. Thank you. Of, of yeah. being there for someone, but also knowing how much you're needed and being well, cool well, with that. To be, to be honest, the difference is when you, when you as a facilitator don't have an outcome. Like I didn't need you to get anywhere. And so the problems that we see is when facilitators want people to have transformation so much, it becomes about the facilitator, not the people. We don't need you to be different than you ever are, right? If we have gifts and tools to help someone illuminate within themselves, for sure. Do we have skills? 100%. Don't need to prove it though, right? And so to be able to relax and sit back, our invitation is always for people to explore and use their own tools first, right? That's what got them to where they are. They're beautiful. We want to integrate those. It's that we don't have an outcome. If you talk to us, don't talk to us. Like, it it doesn't matter. There's no attachment to outcome. Mm -hmm. It's not about me. And this is one of the things that we teach people is how to hold space. I am holding the space for you to have an experience. You show me and tell me what your intention is. And I support the container that supports that. And if you are outside of that space, I can ask you, uh, do you know? Do you remember what your intention was? Are you still interested in that intention? Cool. Would you like some support in being swung back to that so I can remind you what that is? And that's it. And so this is this is the supporting of your experience, your tears if you get sad and all of that stuff, raging, screaming, raging, screaming breaking that's stuff. Not my experience. I'm here to support you and make sure that you are in a space where your body is safe, your mind is safe, and all of these things are. And and you're keeping yourself safe. I'm not making you safe. I'm providing you the environment and the stimulus for you to be safe in your expansion and exploration of self. There are facilitators that, are, that want people to have transformations, that want people to see God, that want people to be better because they see them as broken, which is an undertone of shame. Mm-hmm. And, and this is something that we teach people to stay out of, especially if, if, if a person is going to be facilitating. That is an important part of the integration process to let a person have their experience. You can support somebody without altering their experience because you feel uncomfortable. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, what I sensed, and I've sensed this with uh, many facilitators holding spaces, is just a sense of safety. Just knowing that if it's kind of like, you know, living near the police station, like don't really need them. But if you do, you're glad they're, you know, five minutes away, which I currently am. I <laughs> We blew a, a, a propane line. I was like, are those guys living in the backyard? They were here in like 30 seconds. Wow. But it's, it's a sense of security just knowing that there's someone there that can handle shit if it gets wonky. Yeah. And, and almost in that knowing, things don't get wonky. Exactly. you have the wherewithal within your own soul to work it out as you go. And it gets, you know... It it's gets, when people panic that it goes sideways. When they feel like someone doesn't have them. Then yeah. that is when their nervous system kicks in. They can't think clearly. The more at ease someone is, the deeper they can go into their experience because the first step is the physical body has to feel safe to allow the conscious mind or the consciousness to travel space and time and whatever. If the physical body is not safe, it's going to impact the experience for sure. And the more relaxed you are, if something challenging comes up, you're like, and I can just breathe. <laughs> it's, it's bringing me back to, uh, you mentioned the year that you, you started working with psychedelics. And I was like, what year was it for me? It was 1987. Home ec class in high school <laughs> was my first acid trip. It came on. And that was 10 years of pretty horrible psychedelic experiences that I just kept going back to over and over again. Because it was the exact opposite of what we're describing here. Right. It's like totally unsafe environments, total, you know, chaos many times. And also everything was very random. Not only no intention, but just we don't know where we're going, who's going to be there. I mean, talk about no set and setting. I mean, like the worst possible scenarios you can imagine. all the sets and settings. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's just like, oh God. It's like, you know, for those that have had those type of experiences, it's, it's beautiful to kind of illustrate what it can be if it's done thoughtfully. Yeah. I've always been a fan of pomegranate, but I had no idea it contained one of the most powerful compounds in the world for mitochondria. It's called urolithin A, and it's incredible for mitophagy. Or put more simply, the way your body discards old dysfunctional mitochondria. The thing is that you'd have to eat ridiculous amounts of pomegranate to get a clinically effective dose of this urolithin A. That's why I get mine in a product called MitoPure, available in a berry powder, protein powder, and soft gels. Super easy to take and adopt into your daily routine. MitoPure is a breakthrough postbiotic that activates your body's natural defense against aging. It's also the first product on the market to offer a precise dose of urolithin A to upgrade mitochondrial function, increase cellular energy, and improve muscle strength. MitoPure is the result of 10 years of research by scientists at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, and its clinically proven benefits are available for the first time in the U.S. through Timeline Nutrition. To learn even more about the science of MitoPure, go back and check out episode 389 with Dr. Chris Wrench. It's a mitochondria geek out of the highest order of magnitude and helps simplify this complex topic. And in the meantime, as a special offer for you listeners, you can use the promo code LUKE10 to get 10% off any 2, 4, or 12-month MitoPure plan at TimelineNutrition.com. And by the way, I highly suggest the starter pack, which lets you try all three forms of MitoPure. Again, that's TimelineNutrition.com, and your code is LUKE10.
Um, that brings me into uh, what I was alluding to earlier. In so you guys have the Condor approach. You have mm-hmm. this this um, training program, which my friend David Keller has been raving about. Oh my God, Todd Calder program. Ah. <laughs> And I'm so glad he found you because he's yeah. very, you know, enthusiastic and and not new to psychedelics, but new to using them in, in this capacity. Coaching is a different thing. And yeah. This is so the... give me the breakdown of because you guys aren't teaching people how to go serve medicine uh-uh. to people. You're you're doing something else. So let me get a get clarity on that uh, for people listening. Yeah. So you know we break things down in Ta. I'll actually turn it over to you because the way you break down just kind of the different roles between Sherpa facilitator. Um, because I think that that will give great context to guide us into this conversation. Sure. So there, there are different levels. So the way we, the way we break things down, and you know, this is all context driven. There's a, a person who's a trip sitter, and a trip sitter is kind of like a foundational person who can hold space for a person that's having an experience. They may not have experience facilitating and guiding people through, but they know how to keep an environment safe. They know how to walk somebody to the bathroom. They know how to set up a room. That's a trip sitter. A space holder is a person that's like a trip sitter plus. The trip sitter, and they can actually hold space for a person and maybe guide a person back to their intention. They maybe know how to, to, to see where a person may be going and swing them back around. A facilitator is a person who's skilled at space holding, trip sitting, and plus, right? And so they can actually help guide a person into really, really deep spaces because they know how to navigate psychedelic spaces themselves really well. They've been adept at it. They've been in this in the psychedelic space. In in particular, hopefully they're u- utilizing, they're, they're guiding a person with a substance that they know how to navigate. So that's, that's a, a facilitator. A Sherpa is a person who can go into the space like shaman, right? Who are doing ayahuasca. They'll take ayahuasca and they'll be in the field with a person. And so a Sherpa goes in and they are actually altered because they're they so good at navigating psychedelics. They know how to hold that space in that container and be in it. There's a different vibrational quality to it where they can actually guide a person, feel a person's situation and be in there with them. It's like, a, it's like taking somebody into the mountains. You're a Sherpa. And so those are the different spaces. An integration coach is a person who actually can coach a person from the beginning of the process, through the entire process, and then after the process to integrate everything into their lives. So this is a kind of like an overseer. And we always invite people who are, who are space holders, who are facilitators, who are Sherpas, to be able to coach integration because you're part of an integration process. And this is something that we've been finding has been a challenge for people is because people are not guiding people into integration. You have this experience, you have a circle at the end of the journey, and then you go do whatever you do, right? And then people are coming to me and Cole because it's like, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. My life's falling apart. You will integrate things whether you realize it or not. Are you the person that's influencing your integration? Are you the person that knows how to drive the bus? Are you the captain of the ship? Or is the ship driving you into out to sea on your own? And so those are the differences in those spaces. And and what we teach is how people can do an intake process, which if you're if you're going to be guiding people through journeys as a facilitator, if you don't have an intake process, you're asking for it. Well, and it's gonna cost you time and money mm-hmm. for sure. And that's, you know, what we realized is one, we actually don't need more facilitators. Beyond the fact that it's not legal in most places. In most places. 
Um, you know, there's just, there's a few key things people don't understand. One, it's like everyone wants to be the facilitator. It's like the Steven Tyler, you know what I mean? They're like, no, if I'm going to be an Aerosmith, I want to be Steven Tyler. Oh, and man. so we get that. We understand there's a lot of significance. That's wonderful. Oh, Part of it the is... The responsibility <laughs> though, man, if you really understand the gravity of when that. You really, well, when, mean... you, when you really get clear in your true intention, if it's to help people, then the current model to help people is what we call a psychedelic informed coach. You are the the engineer that's looking at all the information where someone's giving you their big vision and you're going to help them architect that and coach them through that model. But it's all their idea. They come with the design. They say, look, I'm going to go do ayahuasca. I'm going to go sit with ayahuasca in Peru. After this, when I come back, can we get, where does the rubber meet the road from my transformation to the realization to the actualization? Because what happens is people go on a trip, like to a retreat, they come back, they slide back into the old ways because it's the path of least resistance. And so it fades. And so for us in time, the problem is you can't unknow what you know. So you go have the big realizations. You don't actualize it, but now you know Brutal. about it. Brutal. Right. And yeah. that's when we start to <laughs> see it degrade so the health. That's like, so good. The body now won't let you ignore it. This is this is this is really good. And thank you for how you broke that down too. And hopefully I can remember to get back to the Sherpas because those fuckers are wild. <laughs> uh, that's wild. But to this point, um, and I don't know why it's been my experience. I mean, maybe because I was in recovery so long and just working on myself so much. But anytime I've had a breakthrough in a psychedelic experience and I've gotten the answer or more so even like a to-do list kind of that's how it comes to me it's mm -hmm. like okay you're seeing some shit now if I have the courage to lean into something especially those things I don't want to lean into sometimes I take a break and I'm like okay we're gonna go there <laughs> and then it's like diving into a deep pool and I'm just like oh we're fucking in here I'm not, I might not my ego might not like what we find and what I'm gonna be instructed to do afterward because that's yeah. where the real that's radical self-responsibility yeah but I'm thinking back to the last time I sat with ayahuasca and um I didn't have post-integration help you know mm -hmm. um I if I would have needed then someone like you or the people you're training would have been but I didn't really need it. I know what the answers were that I got. And there's like, there would be such a tremendous self, um, sense of, uh, of failure and guilt in me if I got those answers that were given to me by source, my higher self, soul, the medicine, whatever. Because usually for me, it's like, you're doing this, this, and this. Go do it. And if I don't do it, it nags me. There's things that I need to do. <laughs> yeah. In the last ceremony, um, oh man, there were, there were like very clear instructions and um, one of them was to have a conversation with Allison about something that was very shamey uh, and I didn't want to do it. And after the first night, you know, we woke up and I was like, oh, da, 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 I got to do the thing. <laughs> and we did it. And I was, it was received with such love and acceptance. It was perfect. We worked through it. Another one, and I'll just share this for people listening. It's personal, but I don't care because there's probably someone listening that could use something like this. Mm -hmm. But I was, I was observing how it's so difficult for me to be in total silence and how much I distract myself, listening to podcasts, playing music, just being here in the house. It's just big and empty and echoey. You know? <laughs> I'm like, why do I always have to be doing something, hearing something? Because Allison's not like that. She'll just chill. The house is quiet all day long. And I saw that even all the healing I've done around my trauma, that my whole life I've been running from this feeling, or, you know, or just running from um, a sense of not being safe. Anyway, long story short, 
I, I got to the core of it and it was around um, sexual abuse that I endured as a kid. And so, you know, that's nothing new to me in those spaces to work with. I mean, I've gone like down to the darkest depths of that shit, felt it, forgiven it, all the things. But it was still lingering there and, and affecting, you know, just how I operate to a degree and, and not in dysfunctional ways, but just in that distraction. So anyway, the directions I was given were that I was to take two small pieces of paper and to, man, I thought this was like going to be unemotional, but to write the names of each of the two pedophiles that had groomed and abused me when I was a kid to write them down on little pieces of paper. And then I had this um, box on our kitchen counter, like a little wooden, cute little wooden box. And it said to put them in there and to go bury it in the woods. I was like, wow, that's weird. And then the resistance was, which is hilarious. I liked that little box. And I, didn't want, <laughs> I was like, that's my box. You know, I don't even use it, but I'm like, it's kind of cool. I don't want to waste it. I mean, that's how like, yeah. You know, the subconscious is going, no, no, don't look at that. Don't do it. Hang on to that. And I came home and I would have kicked myself in the ass so hard. Immediately did the thing. When I drove them down the road with the shovel and I buried that fucking box. You know, did that mean anything? I don't know. I hope so. Was I given that instruction for a reason? I hope so. Probably. Did my life dramatically change after that? No. Do I like silence more? Maybe a little. <laughs> But Just that box size. But I was, but I was, and I can get a new box, you know, uh, maybe I already did. But it, it, it's that I was shown something very specific to do. I don't know why. I don't know from where it came, but I had to do that. But if I had a, if I didn't have the wherewithal to do that, or it was right. too scary or lazy, procrastinating, avoidant, whatever, then I would need a coach after that experience. And they'd say, well, how did it go? What, what happened? And I would say, well, I got this box thing and these pieces of paper, but what do you think? To have someone to hold me accountable to that if I couldn't do it myself would be really important. You know, what you were saying, I think that's, that spurned that long rant, and I apologize to the listeners for talking too much, but it's because I get that feedback sometimes. It speaks to the actualization, right? It's like that's the end step of that little thread that one went down. And there were a bunch of other things actually that weekend that, you know, I also completed, which was great. But that was, that one was a good example for me because it was so concrete. Mm -hmm. well, well, thank you. It was actionable. Thank you for sharing that, for being so vulnerable and for having your emotions, family. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for being you. Thank you for everything that you've endured, Luke. I really, really hold you in a tremendous amount of esteem for how you show up for your audience and for yourself and for Allison. Thank you, family. I really, really appreciate you. And I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I love you, ma'am. And don't worry, everyone cries with us. Yeah. Thank <laughs> Wouldn't you. be the first time. <laughs> Thank you. you know, sometimes we're doing these podcasts and I'm like, did you just say that? You know, it's <laughs> like that. Right? That judgmental self. But I know there's one person listening. That needs to hear that. Yeah. That's well, going to go, you can do that. Right. But you that's can, the subtlety you can talk though. talk about it. Well, but know? it's also that act that you said, you don't know if it really made a difference. That subtlety is what we see creates the most transformation because that means you trust yourself. So, and that's like the core thing. That's the only hope I have for each person on this planet is to have that level of trust to be like, well, I don't know why, but when I listen to myself and I look at the results of doing that, it's gotten me here. I trust it. And so even though in that moment you said, I don't know if it really impacted that, 
people can get so caught up in psychedelics being the big transformation that they will actually skip the nuance that is the difference of switching into an optimized life out of survival mode. And as someone that collects data, you know, and like biohacking and metrics, for us, it is the nuance that you find the most truth. When there's not pain, if you don't do it, like there would be discomfort, but in contrast to other things you've been through, that small act is as important as any big transformational experience. And for us, it's more that people have diminished the importance of those subtle, nuanced moments that actually for me, are the divine articulation of all of the other work. That in that moment, you heard that voice that you said, all right, this is what I need to do, was the proof that you are taking the divine teachings into and integrating them into the now. That, you, that in that message, in that moment, you got to explore that. That's integrating it. So it's like, I still integrate journeys from years ago where something will come in. And so for us, that actually perfectly exhibits from like a coaching perspective that sometimes people will go, well, it wasn't really, you know, it was just a small thing. And I don't know if it really did anything for us. We're like, no, that is the difference. It is. It's, it's a huge difference. And the, this is where we invite people to detach themselves from outcome. Your intention in, is not an outcome. It's something you're looking to explore. And for you to have that situation where it's like, I don't know why I'm doing this. It doesn't make sense. But you went and you did this situation and now it's here. And you're broadcasting this to how many people and how many people are going to hear this. And even if it's that one person that that hears this story and saw you have this emotional situation or heard this come up for you, change their trajectory. That is you integrating with your audience. That's integration. And so to have the realization that things are outside of, of, of what we would know, these are plants. These are, these are plants and fungi and substances that come from the universe, right? And so to, to sit here and think that you have jurisdiction over how things should be puts you in a position to, that you're expecting outcome. Anytime there's a should, you're anticipating an outcome. And so it's like, this doesn't make sense. Good, do it anyway, right? And so you did it anyway. And so now this is impacting something else and somebody else in a whole audience of people. And that, you know, it's like when you look at a flight path crossing the country, one degree, the nuance is a completely different city. That's if we leave Los Angeles and we're off one degree, if we thought we were going to New York, we could end up in Atlanta from one degree. And so that for me is where the coaching models really come into play because quite often, especially as someone that comes from the once an addict background as well, if I would have understood the little things I was doing to improve my life, it would have helped slow down and even stop a lot of the shame spirals because I didn't have proof because I was looking for enough quantifiable proof and I couldn't find it. And the second I felt like I didn't have it, I'd spiral back down. But those little nuanced moments, like the Condor approach is a journaling system and it's actually totally free. And they'll have the, you'll have the link in the show notes, all yeah, of that speaking stuff. Speaking of which, I forgot to mention it earlier, but it's going to be lukestory.com slash integrate. Lukestory.com slash integrate. So anything we talk about here, including links to your course yeah, and well, all the things are going to be in there. Well, we offer so much for free. And so this journaling workbook it's what I developed to get out of my chronic medical conditions. 
because the first 60% of my medical conditions was inflammation from diet, lifestyle, nutrition, which we could argue is still from trauma. And then the other 40%, I got through psychedelics and tracking nuance because that little ache in my back that I thought, oh, it's because I'm getting older. No, it's because there, it was the way I was carrying shame. My endometriosis was an internalization of shame from sec- assaults on my sexuality from eight to 12 and my thoughts around the experience from being raised Mormon. And so when I started to look that the nuance is actually the, just as important because our body is comprised of all these cues and what we teach in the condor, in the condor coaching certification is body mapping, that there is no such thing as nuance. All of them are signals and cues. Your emotions point back to three points of ease. Every emotion is telling you if you're feeling safe, connected, and fulfilled. And if you'll ask yourself in any emotion, where am I not feeling safe, connected, or fulfilled? You'll usually figure it out. And if you talk to Ta, he will figure it out. And so we found all of these ways to take these very nebulous components and turn them into systems because that is our purpose. That is the gift of his medical background, my analytical mind, working in a lot of strategy is that now we actually can lay it out. So someone before might have said, once an addict, always an addict, can see the data proof in front of them that even if they say my life sucks, if we get them from a nine to a seven, that's huge. Mm -hmm. And most people's minds are generalizing. So it either sucks or it doesn't suck. I'm in pain or I'm not in pain. I'm depressed. Everything is or, that binary. When you get the data in front of them and they can see like, oh man, I've actually made some progress. That spark of hope is the difference. That little moment when they go, wow, no, I, you know, Mike, because we have daily stress scores and sovereignty scores. Stress score is how someone's daily stressors are. Sovereignty is basically, can you be with your emotions? And what is that? What are you making that mean? Between those two scores, for someone to see their scores get higher, even by one point, is going, okay, I'm still on the right track, right? That's why when someone's on a weight loss journey, you measure, take pictures, weight, and fat loss percentage because you need more metrics because the scale alone isn't the truth of the whole story, right? The body fat percentage isn't all of it because their clothes might fit smaller because of their muscular changes. But in psychedelic space, until the condor approach, there were no metrics without trying to define experiences. That's not what we're doing. We're saying when you wake up every single morning, are you getting sleep more than yesterday? Less about the same? What do you want to know, do, be, or understand today? And then also celebrating yourself and it infuses a gratitude practice, right? And then there's a body mapping, marking little X's on the body because you'll be like, man, every Sunday before I have to go to work, you know, I'm getting my old shoulder injury. Is it your old shoulder injury? Or are there patterns that are showing up around the same people, the same dynamics, the same circumstances? And when we started to do that and look at the literal function of the body part being impacted, along with what we call the chakra development, what ages your chakras develop, your body starts to make perfect sense. And then you get a deeper appreciation for when you're getting the cues because now it becomes your best friend, the one that its only goal initially is to keep you alive. Once you mend that relationship, it will optimize and drive you to any outcome you want. 
now Ta and I will be walking down the street and I'll be like, "Mm, I want to go that way. He doesn't ask why. And then we'll run into one person and in that moment was like, wow, I was just thinking about you. Because now our body is fueled for optimization and purpose and contribution. And so that's where it guides us instead of only away from pain. That is the expansiveness that's possible after the healing journey. And that's where we wanted to dedicate ourselves. There's a lot of beautiful facilitators out there. What we need is more skilled integration coaches to motivate people, put the rubber to the road after from a place of acceptance, radical self-responsibility, teaching people how to communicate, how to build their emotional intelligence and expand the real estate of what they can hold so it's not or. I'm not depressed or happy. I can be in a very depressed state because I lost something very important while still be in utter joy for the beautiful things I still have. Mm. It's that we keep being forced to choose and we're here to show people how to expand their experience to hold everything. Mm. Brad, Mm. he loves you. Oh my God, so (laughs) much. (laughs) I have love notes all over the house. I do too. I love being in your field. You guys, it's beautiful. It's so Girl, you're so amazing. Like I, I just all this time, and it just keeps escalating. I just, you're just so amazing. I love you, <sighs> Team Schmoopy for the win. Still, when we got together, everyone was like, "Just till the newness wears off." We're like, "Mm-hmm." Ten I've, years later, sucker. I've heard <sighs> that too, and it just gets better and better. But that, that is the life we live in, Luke. If we just go ahead and accept like some stuff sucks and some stuff is awesome, but everyone's trying to cut the highs and the lows. That's what all these antidepressants are for. Yeah. And when we can actually allow the suck fully without like living in it, but most people, the work where their opportunity is, is not to go deeper into their shadow trauma work actually. It's allowing the beauty and gifts in their life to actually receive those things. Like when I first got into this, my shadow work was laughter and play and having fun. I had beaten myself to death on suffering for transformation. And the biggest turnaround for that was in an ayahuasca ceremony. She said, if you keep digging in the dirt, you'll find it. If you want to create, you have to look to the stars. And it was realizing it was time for me to get over my own self and my traumas and dramas and recognize like, hey, it's time now. Put your boots on. There's a lot of people out there a lot worse off than you that need your help. And that's our call. Is anyone hearing the call right now is concerned about legality, is concerned about impact? Because the reality is just because you set up a church does not give you legal protection. It gives you a defensible case. And if we only medicalize, then we create more criminals because medicalization and legalization creates regulation. Regulation creates criminals who don't have access to the models that already exist that aren't going to serve the people they need to serve. Which is a repetition of the old system. It's the same thing. And the people that are going to take the hit are going to be the therapists. Like if you look at any ad for for a company offering jobs in the psychedelic space, we'll say in ketamine therapy for now, because that's what's legal. They are selling that you'll get to transform more lives, mm-hmm. but they're paying poverty. And so we're going to create patients out of the heart-centered people that want to make the biggest difference and feed on their desire to help 
which is why we said, you know what, we're going to step out of the role of facilitator to be completely legally sound because we don't want to see therapists, doctors, and coaches become patients because their purpose becomes a sacrificial thing that it's them or the people that they love. And we're here with a model to say you can help anyone at any price point. You get to decide it. You can be resilient with it. You can meet people where they are. You don't have to just double your rates. Just people haven't seen it done the way that we do. And that's what we want to share. You guys have a course coming up here, um, which will open shortly after. We after haven't figured the out the dates of when. Yeah. The, but by the time this podcast gets released, you'll have enrollment for your course. And you guys are doing, what, like a five-day coming up in January? In February. February, February. okay. Yeah, February 7th to the 11th, okay. 2023. In Austin. In yep. Austin. Yeah. And this is, is this what my friend David yes. did earlier, right? In yeah. September? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, yeah, he did I, June. He did oh, June. June. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He was texting me. Oh man, this is amazing. He was thrilled. <laughs> he was pumped. Still is. Still is. It made a huge impact on him because he's, you know, like some people listening probably like seeing the value that he has to offer and just not having a framework for it. It's a structure. And when people have a structure and we come with a skeleton and we help people with their unique gifts, they might be a doctor right? They might be a chiropractor. They might have other tools they can integrate into an offer. But we explain what does that have to do with a psychedelic lens of understanding the neurological and physiological impact of someone doing that work. That includes cannabis work. And that's legal in lots of places now. And so the models that we teach have to do with transformational experiences. Going to Tony Robbins is a transformational experience. If people knew how to integrate it after, it would change the outcome. Short-term results is nice. Long-term results is optimization. You can enhance something without optimizing it. You can go enhance your state of joy, but you're not going to optimize joy until you create the strategies that support the joy so that it's not based on willpower alone. Optimization is enhancement on autopilot. Mm -hmm. You're constantly optimized. You're constantly enhanced all the time. And so it becomes your new mainstay. That's where we're looking to get people into that space. And the the integration process that we have is, is here and it's functional for all transformational circumstances. David Keller, shout out to David Keller, <laughs> right? He's he, going to be here in this he, too, for sure. He works with cacao. Right? Beautiful ceremonies. Beautiful ceremonies mm-hmm. with cacao. And to have an integrative process for people in cacao, boom. The, the person, that, that, that can that you're working with, the owner of that company, I spoke to him about integrating. He wants to utilize this to help people integrate kava. Oh, cool. Okay. Shout, shout out to Cameron. Uh, Cameron True, from True Kava. What up, Cameron? <laughs> uh, He's an amazing human being yes. and his story is amazing. So if you get an opportunity He's been to on the check show him a couple out. Times. Nice. So, yeah. so yeah. He's, he's looking at helping people to integrate their experiences around kava because people have these expansive experiences and they're, they're like, what do I do with this? And so this is something, we're in a really right place with psychedelics coming into a new space. It's on the stock market now. People are leaning into it. People are micro dosing and the legalization thing is here whether people like it or not Mm -hmm. and so we have about 330 million people in the united states of america and we have roughly between functional about 120 to 200,000 therapists in this country the amount of people that are leaning into using psychedelics 
we're going to need a lot more therapists mm-hmm. than we have. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And, and we're going to need a lot more therapists. And so to train a therapist takes somewhere between three and five years, depending on how they study, right? From a social worker to a psychotherapist. And so it's going to- Plus gonna t- wait times plus for wait psychedelic times programs. For psych- and plus you don't know who's going to do what. And so to have coaches who can guide people back into themselves is tremendously important. And to have an integration model that's not just for psychedelics, it's for coaching, it's for cacao, it's for therapeutic circumstances of any sort to have a model like this that we can get into the industries worldwide to help people find themselves in themselves is tremendously important. And they can support their own communities versus the top-down support that's the trap. Yeah, and we're we're using the lens of psychedelic, psychedelic integration right now. And this is an integrative process that we have people that are Reiki therapists, we have psychotherapists, body workers workers that come to our training and they take this and they use an intake process with their people so that they actually start to get to know their clients. So when stuff comes up, how many times have you gone for body work and you start crying, right? So, oh my gosh, what do I do with this? This trauma comes up. How do you integrate that? To have a model where you're not just a massage massage therapist, but you also have a coaching situation where you can do a group with all of your clients twice a week where you help them integrate how their body stuff comes into play. What's unique in what we're doing is we're teaching people how to coach and we're helping them build their business that supports what they want to do and in what their integrity looks like. Mm -hmm. So one person, for example, she does basically like virtual work, right? where someone might live on the other side of the world that can't get access to a facilitator. She doesn't facilitate them, but she helps educate them and like do a walkthrough with a camera to set the space and things to be mindful of and sharp corners and move that out of the way. And then she educates a trip sitter in the space for them. Wow. Right? Because that's all that's Put available. Put a playlist together. Playlist yep. is important. Always <laughs> the playlist. But those kinds of things, yeah. we give the, the power back to each individual because as long as we rely on daddy government or whoever to come in and save us, we are, we're in trouble, right? Because with how quickly this is getting mainstream and all the documentaries and my mom called me about the Today Show. She's like, did you see the Today Show today? I said, I assure you I did not. <laughs> um, and wonderful, Right it's becoming so mainstream that it's growing much faster than any system could possibly support. And the thing for us is we're like, right, and we can get you to be a master psychedelic informed coach in two years so that once it legalizes where you are, it's turnkey. Facilitating is the easiest part when you understand how to hold space and be a solid coach. Because in that, we have like, we have something we call a state's assessment and you run an SOS when someone starts to get activated. First step of an SOS, which is state or strategy, you stop. We call it, you stop and take a pee-pee. Pause and physical scan. Take a breath with someone, right? Just like these types of little tools. And then we'll say, all right, talk. When you're coaching someone, what state are they in? S being the situation. T being their thought about the situation. A, the actions as a result of the thought about the situation. Then we have another T, which we call the triangle, which is the, you know, the victim, villain, victor. The other E is the emotion. When you get the evidence of one circumstance, then you can see what strategies they're using or they can see. It's not about you, right? You're just filling in the model over here so that they can see it on paper. From there, we can assess their strategies. This is where someone can take radical responsibility for what they want to do with it. 
I don't need you to change it. And so our combination of teaching someone how to be um, a coach that isn't projecting their stuff all over on someone, um, how to hold very like clear space, and then how to take their unique gifts, not what some you know certification is telling you you have to do as a psychedelic psychotherapist because oh, there's so much to unpack. But just as one example of how complex this is going to be and why the concern is for like therapists is... In places like Oregon where it's legalized, they have to have multiple locations for the one business, the place where the journey happens, the place of the integration coaching. So you're going to have multiple expenses for one offer. When this is first rolling out, it's going to be for PTSD, depression, anxiety, which means you have to be sick enough to qualify for care. And then we already know that people with those severe complexes aren't usually working so then they're going to need government assistance or the, you know, the VA. And so who has to do that? The licensed therapists are the ones that have to chase the insurance companies. We're going to have coding issues with insurance. They're already not going to be making enough money. So again, we're going to force one sect of people who want to be the helpers to be the oppressed because of the system. And so in this, we're saying, we're going to help you create a model that's functional for you. If you love one-to-one, cool. If you want to run monthly integration circles with your community and charge 20 bucks a person, great, let's create that for you. But in a way where the results are quantifiable, in a way that actually supports sovereignty and for a community to build and still be in their own processes, but together. All the while you creating a sustainable income so that you are not struggling yourself and putting yourself into a traumatic circumstance. Yeah, that's that's a a bona fide archetype, right? The broke healer, mm-hmm. the broke spiritual teacher. Broke musician, I did that one too. <laughs> I did yeah, too. Me yeah. too, man. <laughs> hey, me too, bro. <laughs> Traveled around the world with it. Yeah, mm-hmm. but you know, I think an important thing here that I'm getting is the foundation of a grassroots approach to this. Because, I mean, as you're talking, uh, Cole, I'm just like, oh, man, this shit is way more complex. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, make it all legal, Cole. Everyone's going to get healed. You know, it's like, oh, this is nuanced. But something that comes to mind is with this grassroots approach, kind of from from the bottom up, coaches up, being self-empowered, as, as Toss said, being able to support themselves, create an ethical business, a win-win business out of this, um, is the accessibility Mm-hmm. You know, because that's the thing I think about. I Oh, sure. I can fly to Costa Rica and spend five grand on an ayahuasca retreat. Well, what about the person who makes 25 grand a year? And that, that's not feasible, right? And and so if they're like, oh, God, I'm really feeling a call to uh, work with medicine, then they would run a higher risk of eh, maybe not, maybe doing a little more clumsily or getting someone who's really not qualified to help them integrate or to hold space or actually serve the medicine or whatever well, it is. Or it's right? too much pressure on one experience because they might have saved every cent or taking their kid's right. college fund thinking this is the only chance I have. So maybe if I take this $1,000 and go to, you know, South America, then, and I'll, you know, go to the bootleg shaman I found in Iquitos or something. It's a thing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> There's God. like, you know, red light district vibes. <laughs> oh, but that's man. a thing. Um, and we're also seeing a lot more people that are coming forward in claiming their indigenous heritage without the training because they see the financial gain. So there's lots of things happening on so many levels that that's why for us educating, once we illuminate those, then people go, okay, we have more conversations to have 
And that, but this is the, this is where the changes start. Because just by me being able to say to someone, look, I know you want to go to Peru. This is the only thousand dollars that you have. And that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself and the facilitator that basically, if you don't get this transformation, you're offing yourself. And so, and that doesn't mean someone still doesn't go. But by us being able to have a more real conversation from a coaching perspective, then someone may choose to do it differently, right? Or we may say um, how we can do more work to prepare in breath work, in embodiment practices to to hopefully impact the outcome of their experience. Uh, But people are getting more desperate and it's still going to be years before I would say legal access for all. And so the first step from my lens is decriminalization. So people can grow their own, share their own in that way and hold space in their own community because not everyone can fly to work with elders. Not everyone has access to elders and yet, you know, they're hurting in, you know, the streets of Philly. They're hurting in the streets of LA. And if there's one person there that has had exposure to be able to hold space for them that actually knows their lived experience, that's life-changing. What if I told you you could drink one drink that not only supplies the nutrients of 13 superfoods, but also boosts blood flow, physical and mental energy and stamina, while still tasting like a healthy Kool-Aid type fruit drink? Well, you can. And of course, I'm talking about Organifi Red Juice. These guys make a drink powder that contains potent adaptogens like rhodiola, ginseng, and reishi mushrooms, antioxidant-rich berries, organic beet juice, and even a clinical dose of cordyceps. But for me, perhaps the best thing about it is that it tastes delicious and just plain water, so there's no need for a blender. I love the red juice as a pre-workout or sometimes as a blood flow stack with other supplements, nootropics, and even, don't tell anyone, microdoses to maximize the effects of whatever I mix it with. So this is my afternoon pick-me-up when I want to skip caffeine or other stimulants. And the convenience of their on-the-move canister and go packs make this super easy for travel as well. And as you probably know, if you've been listening to this show, I've been on the Organifi train for years as they've been a brand I can trust to always be organic, non-GMO, certified gluten-free, and perhaps most importantly, certified glyphosate residue-free. Heads up on that. That's something you want to look for. But mainly I just dig them because their stuff works and I don't like wasting time and money on bogus health products. So check out the Organifi Red Juice and taste and feel it for yourself. Here's what you do. Go to Organifi.com and use the code LIFESTYLIST for 15% off any item in the store. That's Organifi with an I. And again, the code is LIFESTYLIST. That brings to mind probably the million-dollar question of this conversation for people who are more on the participant side of things or the curious participants in it. Uh, a question I get often, especially like in direct messages on Instagram, like, I know I probably shouldn't ask you this here, but like (laughs) where I live in my community, these experiences do not exist. Like how do I find someone to help me uh, in that? And so I'll direct them to like the third Paul Austin's third wave website. There's a directory of, you know, retreat centers out of the country and legal ways to to Mm -hmm. have these experiences. And I'm kind of stuck there. I'm like, ah, try that website. You know, I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to, you know, introduce someone into something that could be illegal, essentially, especially on a social media platform. 
So for They're someone, all screenshot it was Luke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, or people try to send me mushrooms all the time. I'm like, dog, like you know, they're illegal. Um, <laughs> I know we kind of all forget that, but um, I remember more being in a state like Texas than I did California. But say someone's listening and they're like, cool, I, I would like to have one of these integration coaches or a, you know a psychedelic informed therapist or whatever it is but I actually just want to go have this experience Mm -hmm. and it's not in my social circle. I don't hang around with burners and whatever, you know, it's just outside of their repertoire Um, because it doesn't, you know, a lot of these experiences can be had in an inexpensive way. It's not the access is necessarily financial. I mean, you can grow mushrooms in your closet enough to send you to the fucking moon. That's not it. And you can find someone at any concert to probably sell them to you or whatever. You know what? And this is part of it, Luke, is that people have to first start opening dialogue in their community because it's different now than it was two years ago, you know? And so my invitation where anyone is, is actually to start talking about it and just asking questions and start to get the pulse of your community because there's facilitators everywhere. Like every time someone thinks there's not someone in their city, it's because that person doesn't feel safe to talk about it. And so it takes building rapport. It, it takes, you know, maybe sharing some stories about new research on your page, right? Um, you'll start to find it. But if you don't come out of the foxhole, they're not coming out of the foxhole because right. they're the ones that have right. the bigger legal concern. And so it's being mindful in how you um, seek out support. Don't send people messages on Instagram that's like, where do I get mushrooms? Like you're immediately a red flag that you don't know what you're doing, which makes you a liability. And so, you know, look at your local psychedelic society chapter. There's those all over the country. Maybe reach out to them about starting one. Hey, could we get some speakers here? When you start to gather community, you'll find what you need. But be mindful again in that outcome-driven approach that I have to do that. Uh, because that's when people tend to settle for an environment that's not very safe for them. You know, there's, there's, there's something I call the expansion equation. And it's curiosity plus courage equals expansion. And to be curious about psychedelics is fine. It's wonderful. I'm curious about this. But if you don't have the courage to go talk about it, you may not expand. And so to have the courage to go out and actually ask about this stuff, ask the people. Most of the people that I know are scared to talk to other people because they're afraid they're going to be stigmatized and they're the person that they'll be they'll be talking about is thinking the same thing. And so it's do you have the courage to open the conversation? Hey, you know, I hear about psychedelics and I'm scared that, you know, that, that it's it's a drug thing, I'm going to be addicted. Can we have a conversation about it? And this is where it starts. It starts with having a curious conversation with courage and moving beyond the stigmas of, you know, like I was saying earlier, the stigmas in the indoctrination space that causes people to be afraid. It's not illegal to, to discuss things. It's, I, I wouldn't... Depending on what you discuss. Well, well I mean, <laughs> it, it, if, you're, if you're asking... You should see my shadow banning on Instagram. Well, I mean, <laughs> when I discuss the, the lines in the sky... Uh, right, no, don't... but I'm talking about person to person. <laughs> no, I know. It's not, it's not illegal to discuss person to person. Talk to your friends about this stuff. Ask Talk, them if they saw the new documentary. Yeah, I just yeah, ask them, yeah. ask these things and start having conversations about it. Things will come to the surface. Mm-hmm. All right, excellent. That's that's good information. I'm going to make sure I don't I don't forget anything here because there's a lot. Well, on that note, um, if someone starts to have these conversations and comes out of the psychedelic curious closet, what are some? And so they find an ad, you know, ad hoc facilitator or shaman or whatever it is. What are some? From the participant perspective, what are some red flags if, if they're kind of interviewing someone or learning more about someone that's 
serving medicine, what, what do they want to look out for to maybe avoid a situation that's, you know, harmful, um, deleterious in any way? The first thing is, is the body. If your body says no, the answer is no. Check in, be able to see if your body's like, no. If your body's like, run, run. That's the, that's the number one thing I would invite a person to. Uh, number two is, you know, asking questions. How will you keep me safe? Right? What, are you, what, is, what is your policy on safety? You know, will there be anybody else around? How um, many people? How many people yeah, will be there? That's always my question. <laughs> where will this... How many people and who's on the playlist? <laughs> where, right, where will this take place? Mm-hmm. All of these things. Yeah. What, kind of, what kind of substance is, will you be working with? What is your experience with this stuff? There's a will whole, everyone be taking the same thing? Is there going to be more than one thing? Mm-hmm. Really important That's space good. because different substances have different energetic spaces. And if a person is not equipped to help people navigate those spaces, things can get chaotic really quick. And that can, that can support a person to feel outside of safety. That's when we start to see what we would describe as a messy container. When there's a lot of substances in one container, it's like opening interdimensional doors on this planet and planetary you know, universal other dimensional doors. And we see quite often people get very dysregulated and have weird symptoms in their body when they were in a container with a lot of different substances on different timelines or like different timings where it's actually there's so many energetic frequencies happening and they don't all get closed. And so my biggest things is one, is the facilitator going to be taking two? And is there anyone that is not taking anything? Because I want someone there that's completely sober because that's what makes me feel safe, right? The other thing that's really important for me is the numbers, right? If there's a lot of people there, I'm not interested uh, because I spend more time like trying to not feel other people's stuff or not take it on. And I've just learned like, what if I just don't do that anymore (laughs) instead of working so hard? Um, The other thing that is really important for me is what's the support look like after? Um, I want to know, are we doing a closing circle? If I need anything, can I call you? Because some people will say, well, we'll do a closing circle. That's it doesn't mean I won't work with them. In the jungle, they don't do integration after, right? That's not a thing for their tradition, at least with like the Huni Queen. But I want to know that so that I can then inform with maybe someone else I'm going. Like, can we keep an eye on each other this week and check in? Things yeah. like that. Yeah, that's so it's, good. it's how you feel about the answers. It's not about that there's right or wrong answers. Mm-hmm. It's that ask the questions you would want to know. What do I need to bring? What's the sleeping arrangements? What do you recommend? What can I anticipate? Sleeping arrangements, huge. It is. <laughs> it is. Also, what's I your, mean, not that you're typically going to sleep, but you know, when that if time you want comes, space, you know, it's yeah. important. What's your policy on touch? Really, really important. You know, what's your policy on touch? When a person is altered and they're touched, they can bring stuff up. Mm-hmm. If there are multiple people, is there a code of conduct? Do you have everybody read a code of conduct and, and sign it? This includes radical consent. You know, is, do, you, do you need consent to look at another person eye to eye? This stuff can bring things up in people. And so what is your, what is your code of conduct? You know, will there be touch situations? Are people allowed to have sex in your container? And this is something that is really, really important. Oh man, sex, when it happens, it makes the whole container can, go The whole container crazy. gets wonky and people will go into back rooms and do stuff in certain people's containers. I've, we've I'll had, feel it. I'll feel and, like all of a sudden can, the matrix shift. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so sex in and of itself is, is beautiful. It's wonderful. It is an altered state. Okay, when people get into sexual spaces, the amount of hormones that are moving through people's bodies creates mm-hmm. a different energetic pattern and that interacts with psychedelics in a different way. And so 
a person's, uh, what's your policy on that? These are questions to ask your facilitator and be bold about asking your facilitator. If your facilitator gets sketchy and is afraid to ask or won't answer these questions, don't worry about it. It's my container. That for me is a red flag. Yeah. It's more how they handle the questions you ask. If Because if I have someone that's not willing to answer my questions when we have a neutral energy, then if I really need you, what's going to happen? You know, or if you've got allergies, is there a cat there? Is there a dog there? Like those are not fun things when you show up to find out. So make a list of what would an ideal environment for you look like. You don't have to do it, right? It's like going to look for a house. You can say, well, I want the master tub and then this and the pool. But I can let go of some of these things too. But the clearer you are in what you could imagine would be a safe space for you to lie down, to have space alone, do you have to stay in the room, can help you bring tools and things to keep yourself comfortable. Awesome. Also, also one, one other thing I would ask is, what, are the, what is the level of experience of the people that are going to be in this event? Oh, yeah. If yeah. you go to an event where everybody's a newbie, you're going to have different types of energy than, peop, than, a, than a kind of mixed environment or an environment where people are experienced. So that's a very important question to ask. I find that people who are new to psychedelic work have, have safer experiences when they go to something that has people who have been experienced in this space. Everyone kind of knows how to hold their own energy. Especially if, there's, especially if there's more than eight people people. Yeah. Very good. Very good. That's all really good stuff. I hope people were listening. <laughs> if you follow, you know, half of what you both just offered, you, you know, probably have a positive outcome for the right person at the right time. And we can also include that finding your facilitator. Yeah. Um, I'll put a whole little bundle for your page because we actually okay. have a document called finding your facilitator. Oh, cool. Like we have lots of free stuff because this is, this is a part of what we've created, right? Our trips and retreats are not cost efficient for most people until they see that what we create, how many families are impacted, where that money goes, and that allows us to do a lot of free stuff. Yeah. Um, because I mean, just the workbook, the Condor Approach workbook. I mean, when you print it out, you guys... 345 yeah, you printed pages me one. It's or a freaking Bible. And yeah. it's so. translated into four other languages. It's translated into... Portuguese, Spanish, French, and German. Now. Oh, it worked? Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, it has to be formatted still. So that's yeah. our next step. But yeah. our, our goal is that, that these tools, if everyone at least had this in the community where they were, they could create a safe space to explore themselves or to hold space for someone else. And, you know, because like I said, sometimes the best person for the job is the person that's there because there is no one else is coming. Well, that's an important thing that you mentioned earlier. And, and I don't want people to mistake this as just, a broad license for anyone who has one journey is like, I'm going to facilitate now. But there, there really is someone for everyone too, you know? And, and I think you talked about this earlier and it made me think of my early days in uh, addiction recovery. I mean, I felt like I had zero to offer anyone at all. But let's say I made it through rehab that first 28 days. If I'm on day 27 and this dude's on day two, I'm like fucking, you know... You're the Dalai Lama. <laughs> this guy, you know, I'm basically an enlightened master because I've made it, you know, those many days marked off my calendar without yeah. putting something in my body, you know. So I do I do believe in that, but still, like without the framework and the coaching kind of that's, element that you guys are talking about, that's the missing link. Well, and that's the radical self-honesty. And that's why for us, we said our greatest gift we could give is for people to get clear in what they know and what they don't. Because when you see it clearly in front of you, because I've had times that there were people I said because of certain conditions I wouldn't work with, then they came to me in just a certain way that I was like, 
they trust themselves. And like I had an ayahuasca circle with one of our, um, she's a paije in Peru, Marley, Marley Tume, that one of the gentlemen that was going to participate in our circle with her, they initially said no because the medications on, that he's on and he and I spoke about it and he said, I, I trust where I am. I know my body. I trust my guides. And it's medication he couldn't come off of for different reasons. And I, I felt totally confident in my body. I wasn't facilitating, right? But we are, I'm educating and we're in discussion. Um, and we sat with her and she felt into him and she said, okay. So there's also guidelines and there's rules. And so until you get clear in the differences between guidelines and rules, what things you don't know. So if you, you know, if you get into a vehicle, you don't know how to drive. If you've never driven a stick, you might make it a little ways until you, you know, completely like blow out the clutch or something. And so it's like just by having some foundational things, we can at least get people clear in how they can serve now, when to refer out and when to recognize something is, is over your head. Right. And that's like, you're starting with cacao, right? I mean, there's a kind of an entry point of or cannabis doing or, something mm-hmm. in, I mean, tea ceremonies, right? There's, totally. there are many different ways of different levels of altering your state in, in some subtle ways and some dramatic Breath ways. Breathwork, <laughs> Breath yeah, yeah. shibari, there's mm-hmm. all yeah. kinds of things, yeah. you know? I'm thinking like tea ceremony to bufo, that's the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, right? I mean, in, and it's, 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 it's once a teacher, twice a student. Right, and it's like mastery is not a. It's a. It's an ongoing, evolutionary process. It's not a static condition, and to be able to move into that space, you have to start somewhere. You have to start as an apprentice or an an experiential person. And once you move into that space, you develop things. And I think that this the, the condor approach provides an amazing space for people to get into that space of practicing, becoming mastered in one particular region, and then expanding that into something else and to continue on the expansion. And, and that's prove, for everything. Yeah, to prove their own processes because lots mm-hmm. of people have tools, but if you really sit down, do they know if their tools for will work for other people? plug it into our process and find out. Right. That brings to mind, uh, as we're discussing access and this becoming more mainstream, you have people that are of the belief that, you know, this belongs to the indigenous peoples of the world and any alteration of those rituals that have been tested over time and developed, you know, over God knows how long. If you're deviating from that model, or not even the model, but if, if you're not going to sit with someone in Brazil or Peru that's 80 years old and has been doing this their whole life, that you're not doing it right, or you're not going to get what you need. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question is, and maybe you've already answered it throughout this whole conversation now that I think about it, but it's like, how do we innovate and move forward with this and also honor the traditions and the people from, from whom these traditions emerged, Right. It's it's kind of that cultural appropriation sort mm-hmm. of thing, right? Well, you you're some white girl, like you can't serve ayahuasca, you know that kind of totally. that kind of stuff. How do we? Yeah, look, I mean, I faced it right as a white woman. <laughs> I, you know, what I did as I really sat and said, what questions would I ask myself in this role? And I started to explore all of them. And the thing that we've really come to find, and then it was validated by many of our teachers in South America. One of them said to said to us. He said, tradition's a beautiful thing that we must honor, but tradition is a prison. And as we started to explore that, that actual meaning over the last five or six years, one thing became abundantly clear the more immersed I came, not with 
the experience of ceremony, but the cultures the ceremonies come from, I started to realize that tradition according to who and at what time starting in what year. Because right. ayahuasca in right. itself, what people are adhering to as traditional now was not tradition before like 1976, right? And certain tradition happening down in the jungles in the Amazon right now, women are not allowed, the, women, the indigenous women are not being allowed to be servers of ayahuasca, but they used to be able to. But now that there became a patriarchal paradigm shift, right, within the last hundred years. So they're working to reclaim their own medicine as medicine women, which is why the work of Marley Tume is so important. She is the only recognized woman Paget as being like that shaman facilitator. And so the first thing I ask people is I say, well, which part of the tradition and what year are you talking about? Which peoples, which tribe, according to who? Because the context of tradition evolves. And we can't, if we all go to the jungle, we destroy the jungle. All the retreat centers being built there, many don't even have water filtration. The jungle is not designed for cities in places like Iquitos or creating cities in the jungle. So it's not functional for us to all do it that way. Where I think we have the opportunity is to have conversations on what we choose to do is financial contribution. Because for, say, in Brazil, some of those communities want to get out of the jungle because they want to actually go create a retreat center to welcome people and they can't do it on a two-day boat ride, right? In the ways that they want to now. They are evolving. One of the boys who came from the jungle here for the first time, he had pizza. He wants pizza now. Like he can't get pizza in the jungle. At what point do we have the right to deny people's evolution too of their indigenous practices? So I think that the next conversation truly is understanding sustainability. Ayahuasca grows very slowly as far as the vine. So for me, it's talking more about psilocybin and wachuma, very fast growing. Um, You know, they can survive in a lot of environments and looking at the cost. Again, if we remove all judgment and we bring in the elders to help understand, right? And then we are financially contributing Like for us, we contributed more in the last year to indigenous communities than most corporations have. But that's because we built it into our model because that is how we help support our teachers. But the thing is, they don't want free give outs. And so they like when COVID happened, when everyone else was worried about toilet paper, we reached out to the families down in Peru that are our sole family there and said, what do you need? They didn't want free money because they want to be valued They sent us boxes of textiles that we sold. They gave me a price. I said, great, we'll double it because this is unique for people to get. And they got all of the money. So when we start to actually integrate what we believe, then each person takes responsibility. Who are your teachers? What group's important to you? How about you commit in your business model, how you contribute, in what ways? And that starts from the ground up, not when you have enough because no one ever seems to. Yeah. I've I've noticed that one. I'm going to contribute. I've noticed that within myself. No, we give first. Like we've given amounts that scared the shit out of us because we didn't even have enough ticket sales for the retreat yet. But for us, it was trusting that when we give because we know, we give because we trust. 
And so for us, the contribution is the good faith. It's the giving gratitude first, not the backwash of what's left. Listen, when a lot of the traditions on our planet were created, were founded, there was a lot less people on this planet. And so the traditions were designed around smaller groups of people that had different methods of communication and did not have the internet and technology. And so now that we have all of this technology, we have different financial systems, we have a changing food supply, we have all of this different stuff, the traditions that were created to support societies in the way they were are not functional right now. And so to honor these things, I understand. And to have these things transmute into something new that can honor the technology that we have is tremendously important as we evolve. We are currently at almost 8 billion people on this planet. In the next 20 years, we're slated to have another 400 million human beings on this planet. That's more than another United States of America. Okay, And in 40 years from that, we're supposed to have another billion people on this planet. That's what we're slated for. And if we keep doing things based on old models, we're going to have a disrupted planet. And so we've got to change the way we do things traditionally, not just, not just uh, as far as agriculture is concerned, as far as, as far as morality, as far as the way we use our water and the way we treat one another is tremendously important right now. And so if we are consistently looking at traditions and how we've enslaved people of different ethnicities, we've enslaved women, we've done all of these things, child labor, all of these things. If we continue to do these things that are traditional, we're headed Mm -hmm. down a slippery slope. And that's, you know, people will talk about deforestation in the jungle, but then I'm sitting down having conversations with women in the jungle that are saying every time we make money, the men from other tribes come and take it because they feel entitled to it. And so for them, they're like, yeah, we need help with the jungle, but can you please first make it where we're not getting cast out, where 70 women women were recently cast out of a village in the jungle because they wanted to practice the ancestral traditions of the spiritual components. And the men in the village said no. So 70 women were cast out in the middle of the jungle alone with like four other men to basically rebuild a new society for themselves or a new tribe for themselves. So there's so many other things to talk about that, you know, it's like, you know, well, we need to save the jungle. They're like, yeah, I hear you. That is important, but that's what gets commercialized too. When we have, could you help, you know, like woman to woman, can we talk, (laughs) right? right? Like when when the men are busy. And so all of this to say that This is why we believe it doesn't mean we can't have the medicalized models. I actually believe that the chemical teachers is what we call them. So MDMA or psilocybin in chemical form, I think we need all of it because of the need. And there's going to be some people that will only feel safe sitting in a clinic with a doctor, or maybe they're on certain medications. They need to have that that eye. What I, what I refuse to see happen is that people don't know psilocybin comes from mushrooms that they could grow. That's what, you know, just like farming, some people still buy McDonald's, some people buy, you know, grass-fed, finished meat. For me, that's what I'm going to see in psychedelics. Some people are going to want the organic that they raised in their own garden, that they loved, that they prayed on, that they sang to. And other people are going to want a clinical setting. And from a sustainability perspective, we actually would benefit from some laboratory aspects so that it's not all put on the pressure of, say, the jungle or growing a vine. And so, or our beloved Sonoran toads. Right. Yeah, right. They're facing that's extinction right. as it is with yeah. the trajectories right now. Yeah. And that's, so, that's one thing, whenever I talk about that, and I, you know, 
telling people they should go do it. I'm just honestly sharing my experience, but I'm like, oh, maybe we should stop talking about it. Well, but then you have you have chemical, yeah, you, have you have chemical synthetic, synthetic. DMT. Yeah, I my uh, from my experience, only your belief that you can't get mutual benefit because I've had people say, well, it doesn't have the soul. I've done chemical versions and had just as much access to organic matter because of who I am and how I connect to the earth in general. When we first moved downtown, someone said, I don't know how you could do that and disconnect from the earth and be in the sky. I said, is the sky not a part of the earth? Because nothing can take me from connection from the earth now, now that I've been so deeply connected. Closing my eyes, I can sit under any tree in the world. I can hold the same eucalyptus tree that I've hugged a thousand times outside of Cusco. To me, once you really recognize that you can't actually be separated from anything, then you can look at the reality of all of the tools and gifts we have from evolution too. And then only when we have the real conversations can we talk about the real solutions because some of the chemical teachers are going to be necessary for us to meet the need. Or if everyone goes to do DMT with the Sonoran Desert Toad, we've got a year. If everyone goes to do Cambo, we've got three. Like the the need is so much bigger. It, it's tremendous. Yeah. And when you consider the amount of people that don't have finances, for 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 pharmaceutical companies to be able to reproduce a psychedelic substance with, without having to destroy you know the forest and all of this stuff that could actually serve people. This is going to be something that's going to be readily available to people who don't have the money to fly to Peru to do all of this other stuff. Or, or they're going to clear the jungle to grow ayahuasca because the jungle is so dense, it can't get enough light. So how do you get the chacruna vine to grow faster? Or if the vine to grow faster. It needs more sunlight. Chacruna is the other plant, but the vine for it to grow faster needs more sun, which means you clear before you clear the jungle. So there will always be an outcome of the decisions. But when we actually sit down with all of it and elders and talk about it, then we can come up with real solutions. Right now, mm-hmm. everyone's trying to choose the one they believe is right, wrong, binary, but they're not looking at all the evidence. People are always building a case on what's right and what's wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And this is where we get into the judgment space and this is where people get offended and people need to, they get into the triangle that we talk about, the drama triangle, the victim, the villain, and the hero, the rescuer, the, vil- the victor. These are the spaces that we get into and then we separate each other. And the idea of separation, again, goes back to what Cole was saying is the idea that all of these substances don't come from this planet, don't come from the plants, don't come from the minerals, all of these things, no matter if they're made in a laboratory or if they're grown in a pot or if they're grown in a forest, whatever it is, this is all from the same planet. Can we get these things to integrate? And that's why we're here to talk about this because integration is not optional. Whether we do it from a space of awareness or unawareness, can we be in a space where we bring ourselves into awareness and we do this because we choose to, not because we're forced to? And this is where the difference is, I believe, in this space. We believe this is why we're doing this work is because we're interested in getting people into a space where they feel safe enough. If people don't feel safe, if they don't feel connected and they don't feel fulfilled, their nervous systems are going to be on fire. Those are the three places of disease, unsafe, unfulfilled, and disconnected. When we get safe, connected, and fulfilled, we are in ease. And that is the space where we can make decisions to integrate ourselves from a space that's highly functional. Hot damn. Well, you guys, I think we did it. <laughs> 19 hours later. I can't, I can't, I can't drop this mic because it's on my head, but I will drop my notes, <laughs> damn it. 
And I love you guys. Thank you so much for, mm-hmm. for spending time with me today. And thank you for what you guys are creating. I mean, we went to, uh, I don't want to say a presentation because it was very informal, but when we came to your house the other day, I was like, we got to have a podcast about this. You guys, I mean, you were already on some cool shit, but this is... It's it's. Something. I feel like this is bigger than I can almost conceive of at the moment. Like, your vision is massive. It is. But anyone... It only took 10 grams of mushrooms if you I mean, want to see it. The, the, the movement is called integration is not optional. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And, and, we, and we, are, we are honored to have you and anybody else who wants to join the movement. Let's mm-hmm. inform people about integration, not just about psychedelics, about life in general, about this yeah. planet. Yeah. And I love what you guys are doing with the coaching program. We're going to put all that stuff in the show notes. And I'm sure we'll probably be able to wrestle a discount for our listeners out of you. Yeah, for those, sure. Those that want to attend here in Austin in yes, February, we'll put please. all the info in there. Because um, it, sound, it sounds very cool and, and very needed. And I do have one testimonial from someone that I know and trust who is like, it's awesome. So thank you for putting that together. I mean, when you guys kind of broke that down the other day, I was like, dude, this is a lot. Oh, of no, work. we're... Uh, it's a lot of work. Because like, you have a five... It's a five-day lot. Because I, I ran a business for years where we did live events. And yeah. it's not for the faint at heart. No. Um, so you have five days and then there is there a... Uh, 90 days 90 after. days after with that, weekly right? calls and okay. coaching calls to integrate because again we're so helping you got to integrate the five days okay? yes yeah, well and because yeah. we're helping people come up with a plan for their business so we want to actually we want to actualize it yeah. like part of our vision is ten thousand coaches that make ten thousand like ten thousand dollars in their first round of the condor approach in a way that is integral and authentic to them so that they believe they can operate outside of the Western models that are created right now and actually be of service to their community and determine where the money goes. And I tell people all the time, you may not need more money, but your community does. And if you don't do something about it, then who? Because we can sit and wait for someone else all we want to. But if you're well enough to come, then it's you. Awesome. I'm not going to ask you my standard question because you have a beautiful instrument in your hands. So, um, Cole, I assume you're going to give us a little closing offering here. I'll do an here. outro. Cool. Let's do it. So, for those <laughs> watching the video. Um, this is called a shrewdy box. Yeah, I love these things. Me too. You know, music is something that in the space is so important. And I, again, I'm grateful to have teachers like Marin Azoff, uh, Nature Paloma, Anyone that loves incredible music, if you haven't checked out Olox, uh, Olox Records on Instagram, she's from the Saka people of Northern Siberia. She does all the animal noises and uh, I've been taking privates with her and just learning from lots of different tradition. This is another way for us to access altered states. And Ta and I met because of music. So it's a big part of everything we do. Let her rip.
Leave your logic behind And let your soul shine That's been hidden deep when you're a human living in metaphor and allegory, just remember to give thanks for this podcast and Luke's story, for the new things, the traditions, the old relics. Make sure you're integrating your life and integrating psychedelics, integrating your mind, your body, your spirit, your soul, staying away from needing to have control. Your intention of what you want to know, do, be, or understand is a place that you can integrate for every woman, boy, girl, and man. For every person on every continent, whether you're loaded with money or you can barely pay your rent, whether you have food on your table and water in your glass, it doesn't matter. Stay in the now, not the future or the past. So I implore, and you I do adore, and I'll do this over and over again, until my mind and body is sore because this comes from the inside from the ground and the heavens above for all the people listening and watching it is you that I love love, love, love it's never a scam because love for me is synonymous with I am I am you and you are me together integrated equals we so I thank you all for your listening and I thank you all for the shine that you're glistening. Join the mission. It's not impossible. The mission for us, integration, is not optional. In order to reach the Almighty, we must first learn to be a human. 
Wow. Just wow. What an inspiring and, dare I say, even transformative conversation. Well, at least it was for me. Sometimes I have these chats with folks and I experience deep healing during the recording of these podcasts. And uh, you'll know if you heard the whole thing, which I assume you have since you're here. We got into some pretty personal stuff for me personally. And it's always this sort of toss up between uh, is my vulnerability going to uh, provide more of a service to the listeners than it is to um, damage my ego and embarrass the shit out of me. So hopefully you guys got something out of this conversation. And uh, it also brings me great joy to have the opportunity to amplify the talk whole message. I'm just continually impressed by their commitment to integrity, compassion, and of course, spreading the good word of intentional, responsible psychedelic work, which for me personally has provided great benefit and much expansion in the recent years. And of course, I'm also stoked that they've offered you listeners there $250 off their upcoming five-day live Condor Approach training, February 7th through 11th in Austin, Texas. So if you're interested in attending their event, enrollment is now open at the time of this publishing, but it closes December 15th. So I would definitely check this out based on all I've learned from them over the years and the incredible model that they've created in terms of their coaching. To get all the deets, here's what you do. Go to lukestory.com slash Cole, T-A-H-K-O-L-E. And the code there is Luke250, uh, which gets you, again, $250 off your enrollment. But here's a hot tip for you. Now, listen up. Even if you have no interest in their training program, I would very highly recommend grabbing a free copy of their integration workbook. Uh, I've used it and it's incredible and available at the same link, which is lukestory.com slash If you're someone who is exploring the realms of plant medicines or psychedelics or really doing any deep work, you know, shadow work, things like that, going through a transformation, I found this journal to be very robust and very useful. It really is, is quite a great workbook. I mean, I called it a journal, but it's really a workbook. It's kind of an after-the-fact journal. At any rate, that's what's up with Tom Cole. So happy they joined me again. It's always a blast to sit down with those two. They're just so enthusiastic and animated. They're just my kind of people, my kind of freaks, you know what I mean? And if you're listening still at this point in the podcast, you are too, my friends. But let's talk about uh, next week's episode. This is what's up. This is number 443 coming up. It's called Safe Sleeping, The Ultimate Guide to Organic Mattresses and Why It Matters, featuring OG industry veteran Jack Delacho from Essentia Mattresses. Now, I've been researching. I know this sounds crazy because like, how long can you research something? But that's just how I roll. I like learning what works and what doesn't. Now, I've been researching healthy, non-toxic mattresses for literally 25 years. So this episode was really fun for me to record due to Jack's extensive knowledge. I mean, he's been doing this stuff for so long and it's just a really confusing topic for so many people. So if you're someone who wants to decode the challenging world of natural mattresses, you'll definitely want to check out next week's episode number 443. All right, that's it, my friends. I'm out. Thank you so much for joining me on yet another episode of the Lifestylist Podcast. <music>